Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Hey, hey, you guys know about a little spider? The itsy bitsy spider? Yo, he's a friend of mine. I want to tell you a little story about this spider, about how he didn't let the rain get him down. You want to sing with me? Come on. The itsy bitsy spider went up the water spout. Down came the rain and washed the spider out. Out came the sun and dried up all the rain. So the itsy bitsy spider, he went up the spout again. Doing good. Yeah. We're live and in person together. I know. That's so exciting. Uh, hey, I was just listening to this really cool song, uh, Itsy Bitsy Spider by Basho and Friends uh, from an album called Dance Party on Fun Street. Well, I wonder why we'd be playing yeah, something called Itsy I, Bitsy Spider. I wonder. And I, I think it has something to do with where we're going. Please, are we going to Fun Street? Uh, we're not going to Fun Street, oh, but man. we are going to be doing something fun. Okay. We are going to use our Wayback Machine, because you know what? It's June, and like we did last summer, we're headed back to the drive-in. All right. So we're going to prime drive-in time, 1958. And this time we're going to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh -huh. We're going to the South 29 drive-in, 4110 Wilkinson Boulevard, and we have got an awesome night planned for us. Now, they're going to be doing five movies. We're going to be seeing three of the movies tonight. Summertime, when I think of summer, I think of, of giant bugs. And we're going to be having giant creepy crawlies. We're going well, to be seeing... And since I live in Minneapolis, I can vouch for giant mosquitoes. Well, we're not going to see any mosquitoes this time. Good, that's a good thing. We're going to be seeing a giant spider better known as Tarantula, the universal classic. Um, we're going to be seeing The Deadly Mantis. And then uh, we're going to go to the beach. And, and uh, that's what you do during the summer, right? And we're going to get attacked by crab monsters. Attack of the crab monsters. So that's our triple feature this month, kicking off our Summer at the Drive-In Part due. The South 29 Drive-In. I got a few notes. The South 29 Drive-In opened 1940. In our time, it's no longer open. It closed 1986. Unfortunately, there is nothing in the area that would even resemble a drive-in anymore. It's long since been developed. There's houses in the area now. Uh, so there's nothing that even look like uh, there used to be a drive-in there. But we're going to when it was a drive-in and in its prime. And, uh, you know, if we went to the North 29 Drive-In, they were doing a bunch of horror movies that night, too. So everybody this weekend is going to be watching classic horror stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that should be great. I'm going to get going. We want to get there early, get a good spot. We got to get a good spot. Yeah. Got to get to the concession stand. Got to make sure we, we get our, our you know, probably Hershey's was popular in 1958. Yeah. We got to get our, for me, Coke. Got to get the Coke. Favorite part of the drive-in. We talked about this last year. The ads, the classic ads, the cartoons, the intermission ads, and maybe maybe if we're lucky, they'll be showing some some even cartoons maybe between the movies. So. Yeah. 
Well, uh, you know what? Here we are going on and on. Let's introduce ourselves. Uh, <laughs> yeah. First of all, we? <laughs> welcome. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from KCCineville.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. I'm going to concentrate on getting us there safely. Do you have anything else you want to say before we... Uh, check back in once we get there no no i think this uh you know i just before we dive in this is the start of our summer uh feature next three months we're doing drive-in stuff and so i'll just kind of throw this out there you know we've got a lot of new members in the last year and we've had some great interaction so maybe some cool dialogue we could do on facebook in 2021 maybe uh people can share their their drive-in stories maybe uh, a particular you know experience they had maybe their first drive-in movie uh maybe the last time they've been to the drive-in or favorite drive-in they they had growing up um some of our drive-ins that we had growing up are no longer around but some are i, I had some great experiences at the landmark twin drive-in in wichita which is now known as the Starlight Drive-In, and it is still open uh, this summer, all summer long. You know, whether you can call us or uh, send us an email or have the conversation going on on Facebook, uh, let's hear your drive-in stories. Yeah, and I've talked many times about the, my two drive-ins in Eden, Oklahoma, the Trail Drive-In and the Enid Drive-In. Uh, saw several Hammer films for the first time at the Enid Drive-In, and... Uh, yeah, great, great memories. So, but we're making new memories now and in the past and in the yes, future. Yes, in the future. And, and yeah, it's that wibbly wobbly, timey wimey Doctor Who fans will get the reference. That's probably my only Doctor Who connection that we're going to have. And I don't know we'll have any Star Trek ones, but maybe, maybe, you never know. Yeah. Uh,. I was thinking we do, but I don't. I don't know. Well, I'll do a dive into the cast and stuff. Surely somebody somewhere has got. We need, I'm probably going to reach a point where we need to do like the seven degrees of Star Trek connectivity, which would make it a lot easier. But we'll see. We'll see as we dive yeah. into these films. These are none of these films are first time viewings for either one of us. I don't think. But um, it's been quite a while since I've seen Crab Monsters and, and Deadly Mantis. And tarantula is always fun, yeah. uh, even though I have no desire to see big giant spiders in the real world. I'm totally cool with seeing them on the uh, the big screen. Yeah, you know I've never seen Deadly Mantis, so this will oh, be the first time. For I me. thought this. I thought you had. Okay. No, I always get it confused with beginning and the end, but uh, I have not. Grasshoppers, seen Mantis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Similar, similar. It has been a long time since I've seen Deadly Mantis, and you know the Attack of the Crab Monsters. This is kind of funny. Funny little story. Whenever I think of it, I think of um, they had this miniature town set up at the um, at a museum in Wichita, Kansas, and it's a, like a Kansas in miniature. It's a really cool kind of think of a train set, but the, every building represents a building in Kansas, and they have a drive-in theater, and it's representative of a particular drive-in theater, and they had it set up so that it would play a movie and it was Attack of the Crab Monsters. Really? That, yeah, so like, in, cool. in miniature you would see on the big screen 
Attack of the Crab Monster would start. So I always think of that. Uh, it's been years since I've been there, but uh, anyone who lives in that area and has been, they know that's a super cool exhibit. And I don't know if they're still doing the Attack of the Crab Monsters on the big screen, but they did back in the day. And so uh, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but I will still flash back to the Cantus in miniature. So... Well, I am going to uh, hit the highway here, and then I'll, we'll be able to push that button, and we'll go zipping into the pass. So I don't know how the technology is going to interfere with that. So I'll stop recording now, but we will check back with you all uh, when we get there, and probably after we watch the first movie. I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. We'll be back. have arrived it's still raining a little but we're early we're the first ones here so let's get us a good spot with a actually a, a microphone that works or I mean a pole that has not a microphone a speaker and I think I see a spot yeah, what about this one here? that looks good good spot of the screen now we'll see the whole thing all right so awesome Look at this beauty. Look at that. Vintage speaker. Now, of course, it's not that? vintage for 1958. No, no. No, but you know, too many theaters will still use speakers in uh, 2021. Kind of cool. So I'm going to hang that on the side window. Yeah. And a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you. One that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Did you fail to dress up for tonight's show? No tie, an old shirt and slacks, a house dress? Well, don't give it a thought. We're glad you came as you are. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. Don't forget to visit our refreshment center during the intermission or any time. You love the tasty array of snacks we have to offer. So will the youngsters. Everything is quality and mm, so good. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. There are always wonderful new pictures to see, delightful snacks to nibble, a gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Don't drive over 10 miles an hour in the theater area for your safety's sake. And mom or pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. now just one minute away from the beginning of our next feature. For your convenience, our refreshment stand will remain open after the feature begins, so you still have time to add to the fun of watching the movie. Before we begin our next feature, we'd like to remind you to replace your speaker before leaving the theater. If it is accidentally damaged, please notify someone at the refreshment stand. Again, thank you for coming out to the drive-in tonight. As you leave, please drive carefully and... Come back soon. I'm just wondering, Tarantula was made in 1955, right? It was. Yeah, we're in 1958, but the movie came out in 1955. Late okay. 
So let's fill some of this time there. I am just wondering what in the world was going on? What happened in the year 1955? Well, the the Queen of England was Queen Elizabeth IX. <laughs> no, um, Dwight D. Eisenhower was president, 1955. 1950s, you know, was a was a big uh, kind of boom period for the U.S. Right, coming off the heels of uh, World War II, people were moving out to the suburbs. That that whole lifestyle, uh, you know, and, and the whole kind of you know hot dogs, apple pie kind of thing was that was 1950s. Leave it to Beaver, Beaver Cleaver type lifestyle. That was one aspect of what was going on in the world. Now, we know now, of course, it wasn't all, you know, rainbows and unicorns, but it was a simpler time in a lot of ways. Gas was only 23 cents. So we make sure we, we got to fill up before we fill up the DeLorean or whatever we're driving before we get back. Black and white TV is actually $100, which is kind of funny because, you know, TVs now have kind of gotten cheaper compared to the price of what we were paying back then and what we were getting a hundred dollars for a black and white TV was actually really a big ticket item. And now for a couple more hundred dollars, we can get like a big 70 inch at Christmas time. Interesting how things kind of fluctuate and, you know, everything goes around in circles. Jonas Salk's polio vaccine was declared safe in April of 1955. You and I both kind of coming in on the heels of that, uh, I know I've got my vaccination scar from when I was young. I'm sure you do too. We we're part of that generation. Talking about the other side of what was going on in the world, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white passenger in Alabama. So that's the uh, the other stuff that was going on in 1955. First Guinness Book of World Records was published. The U.S. began its involvement in Vietnam. The Vietnam War really wouldn't kick up, you know, until almost, what, a decade later, really uh, late, mid to late 60s, early 70s. But 55, earliest uh, steps of probably one of our biggest mistakes, getting involved in Vietnam. On a happier note, Disneyland opened in California on July 17th. Barbie dolls and Mr. Potato Heads were popular toys. Mr. Potato Heads were creepy looking back in the mid-1950s. Yeah. Nothing like today. Talking about television, television was all the rage in the 1950s. The Mickey Mouse Club started in 55 and Gunsmoke started. Yeah, it started a 20-year run. Uh, it was a half-hour show and then John Wayne appeared in the very first episode. He introduced the show. They had originally wanted John Wayne to play Sheriff Matt Dillon, but he didn't want to confine himself to TV and he referred James Arness for the role. He said he was the guy to do it. And so John Wayne kind of paid back the, the offer by doing the very first introduction in the very first episode. <laughs> Top songs of 1955, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets, Earth Angel by the Penguins, Tutti Frutti by Little Richard, Maybelline by Chuck Berry, and Love and Marriage by the chairman of the board, Mr. Frank Sinatra. Top movies included East of Eden, Oklahoma, To Catch a Thief, Mr. Roberts, and Lady and the Tramp. Uh, horror movies for the year included, of course, the classic Revenge of the Creature. Uh, we had the uh, Quatermass Experiment, This Island Earth, and It Came from Beneath the Sea. At some point, some point we will travel to the concession stand, and uh, the most popular candy of the day is something I detest. Yeah. Good and plenty. 
Oh, me too. My dad's favorite candy. I remember going to the Fox Theater in Newton, Kansas, and that was dad would always get the good and plenty. I, at that point in time in my life, I would go for the good and fruity, which I always loved. And they put they came out with that a few years ago. It, it had kind of a resurgence and then it disappeared again. I love good and fruity so much better than good and plenty. I also did a lot of sugar babies uh, back in the day. And I don't even think you can find those anymore. Uh, I know you can find the sugar daddy, but you can't find the sugar <laughs> well, baby. You can find a lot of sugar daddy. You can. Anyway, uh, also the candy necklace was actually, that was the most popular candy in 1958, which to me just seems like such a waste. Uh, I, I didn't ever, that was before me, I guess. I didn't really get into that as a kid. Anyway, that's what was happening in 1955. What if circumstances were to magnify one of them in size and strength, took it out of its primitive world and turned it loose in ours, then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth? Even science was stunned. The new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon. Instead, when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, man was confronted with his most shocking blunder, the isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. when you were telling us what happened in 1955 you mentioned the sort of the feeling of the the era the time and how unique and sort of innocent it was tarantula i think demonstrates a lot of those things uh, more than our other two movies uh, i mean just like the doctor's office is right off the hotel lobby and the clerk at the desk is like as his secretary and there's a switchboard you know it's just very much of its era it really feels like the 50s do you agree i do fred ziffel was the was the desk clerk wasn't he i don't think i put oh, that oh i don't know yeah from green acres yeah yeah you know it was uh what was the pig's name arnold uh, arnold arnold the pig yeah, yeah. You used to have a lot of that, right? I mean, like hotels would, would in buildings and stuff, there would be a lot of like businesses in like, you know, and that was actually pretty common. The movie Tarantula, it was released November 4th, 1955 in Philadelphia. This is a universal international production. So is another of our movies today. Written by Robert Infresto and Martin Berkeley. 
story by Jack Arnold and Robert Infresco and directed by Jack Arnold. How do you like Tarantula? Well, you got a lot of royalty there, really. So you're coming into the into the movie knowing that, man, you, you, the deck is stacked. You know, Jack Arnold, he, he's royalty. So many movies that he did in the 1950s. Uh, it, it came from outer space. Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, This Island Earth, Incredible Shrinking Man. There's some lesser films like The Space Children or Monster on Campus. Did lots of TV. I always kind of find it interesting when you look at his career to kind of see where he ended up in the 1970s by directing Love Boat episodes. It seems like such a far cry from directing these classic monster movies. The writing on this, you've stacked the deck. Tarantula is a classic, and I think of, of 1950s big bug movies. Tarantula is right at the top. I mean, there's so many big bug movies of the 50s. The top that immediately come to mind, them, giant ants. I mean, that's such a classic tarantula, you know, you've got like our, our, our second film, we're going to talk about the, uh, the deadly mantis. That's a lesser entry than tarantula. I think beginning of the end, you got the giant grasshoppers, we've got giant scorpions. And then of course you start getting into the giant Gila monsters and all this stuff. Tarantula is, is at, at the top of the list. Well-made universal knocking it out of the park. I think with this one, You've got a great cast, really. Talk about royalty. To talk about royalty, John Agar. I mean, John Agar rules, right? That's that's the the popular phrase. He's so good as as uh, Doctor Matt Hastings. You know, and again, looking at so many of the movies that he's done, uh, I, I remember him from Sands of Iwo Jima, which is one of my favorite World War II era John Wayne movies. I always have a, an affinity to that film, as I've mentioned on the show before, is because, you know, my dad being a Marine and he was actually present for some of the filming of that movie because they were filming parts of it in, in uh, California. I've talked about this. I still need to find the pictures at my sister's house that I know my dad used to have of, of pictures he took from the filming of Sands of Iwo Jima. There's no pictures of John Wayne, but there's definitely some filmings of some of the, uh, or pictures of some of the uh, location work that they did there. And of course, he's Revenge of the Creature, Mole People, The Brain from Planet Eris, Zontar, The Thing from Venus. John Agar's great in this. I liked Mara or Mara uh, Corday, Mm -hmm. Steve or Stephanie, but uh, Steve Clayton. Uh, she didn't do a lot, though. You know, I, I was like, she's. I thought she was really a strong female lead. Now she does eventually devolve into the screaming damsel in distress. By the time you get to point where the uh, tarantula is, you know, crashing into the house. But hey, I'd probably be screaming like a girl too. Let's let's be honest. That that's kind of creepy. You know, she's in a couple of other movies right around this time period. She was in The Giant Claw and The Black Scorpion. So she kind of got used to dealing with giant creepy crawlies. She's also in Tarzan and the She-Devil. Give a shout out to Tarzan. Was she the She-Devil? Uh, she was not. She was a supporting character. So she was she was not the lead. You know, you've got Leo G. Carroll again. I don't know, you know, royalty, probably not when it comes to horror, but well-known for this time period. I mean, I think people probably remember him most as Alexander Waverly uh, in the, the Man from Uncle and the Girl from Uncle. 
He was also in, uh, he does, he has a couple of other horror credits. He was in Thriller, episode of Thriller. He was in North by Northwest, so Hitchcock, kind of borderline horror cred there. Tower of London, 39 version. I can't recall the character that he played in that. You've got Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff, and Vincent Price as your co-stars, so that that's uh, a feather in your cap there. And he played Marley's Ghost in the 38 version of A Christmas Carol. My least favorite version of the movie, but nonetheless, you know, he, he uh, he's there. We got to mention Nestor Paiva. Paiva. He plays Sheriff Jack Andrews, best known as Lucas from Creature from the Black Lagoon and Revenge of the Creature. So, I mean, he was also in The Mole People, lots of TV work. I didn't realize he was as prolific as he was, 312 credits. So he was a very, very busy actor. When you got those people coming to the table, you've got Jack Arnold, you know, involved. Really, I mean, you've got a solid script. I thought really good special effects. I mean, yes, it's a giant spider and it's like lots of 1950s superimposed technology, but it looked good. And it doesn't always look good in some of these movies. Sometimes there's transparencies and stuff. And I thought the effects were actually done very, very well. Yeah. Uh, you know what I well. think helped that? That his legs were, fu- you know, kind of hairy, fuzzy. So yeah. that kind of helped maybe mask any lines or yeah. anything. I, I would agree. I'm trying to see here who did who did some of the close-up special effect work. And I don't think I noted that, actually. There was some special effect work done the close-up shots of the uh, of the spider that I thought was actually well done as well. And not just the special effects themselves, but just the way that Jack Arnold used the camera. It's just very effective. He uses like point of view with that face coming closer. And then I, I made a note about like when the giant spider was lifting a horse or something, you don't actually see it, but you get that illusion, the way that they turn the camera and and sort of the point of view and everything mixed together. It looks really good when he throws a truck and it spins and, you know, you don't have to see that leg, you know, flip the truck. You know it happened and you see the result and it's very effective. Yeah, that truck special effect actually was really good. I, I, you know, I have seen that before and I've rewound it, you know, a few times to like, that was really good for for mid-1950s. I always thought that was probably one of the one of the best special effects in this. I think that it was compared to some other movies of the time period, definitely a lot of love and attention, I think went into this one, which is why this one is, is considered a classic. Tarantula is a film that I've seen numerous times over the years, despite the fact that I'm not a fan of tarantulas. My stepson, Chris actually has, I think two or three, yeah, yeah, yeah. The look on your face is classic. He's got a menagerie. Yeah, he's got some tarantulas as pets, and that, that uh, and he'll actually like have them crawl on his hand and stuff like that because they're not like you know Kingdom of the Spiders poisonous type thing. However, apparently one of the tarantulas recently did figure out it's very smart. It figured out how to knock the top of the container off, and it got out. And he's got it in like a aquarium. And he and thankfully he realized like basically right when it happened, and he took a picture of it like crawling around on on the carpet. <laughs> like no, no way. I just could not. And he's asked me a few times, "Do you want to want to hold it?" And I'm like, "No, 
not gonna not gonna happen. I remember when he got it. He got it the last one. Went to one of those reptile shows, and that was you know pushing the limits for for ten year old girl inside of me wanting to scream. Thankfully, he doesn't collect wasps because that might have to be the line that I'd have to draw. The first time I didn't see this actually until late in life. My first time viewing was probably about I, I want to say close to to 15 years ago when it was in the um, classic sci-fi ultimate collection when that came out that was my first viewing for tarantula i don't recall ever seeing it on tv before then i know that it was out on vhs but i, I don't recall seeing it before then on, on on tv and now of course you know it pops up on sven uh every few years that would have been my first viewing was 15 years ago what about you I don't know when I first saw it. I've seen it several times and I just really, really like it. One of the reasons I like it more than some of the other giant bug movies is that it's, yes, there's a giant spider, but that's not all there is. There's also the human story with the injections and the people themselves turning into monsters. And I like that there's there's more to it, uh, sort of. And I think that's worth saying that this is... Most, I'm, I'm guessing I could be wrong, most giant bug movies, it's due to a radioactive bomb testing or nuclear testing or something like that. This is not. This is totally human. And uh, let's talk about the plot just for a minute. So, And the science as well. I'll, we're in another show where every uh, movie has its own little theory about science, uh, one more ridiculous than the last. But <laughs> it's an overcrowded world. There's not enough to eat. And Professor Gerald Deemer, who's played by Leo G. Carroll, he has a plan. You know, he's going to take the food we have and just make it bigger. So he's working on a growth formula. Well, as we all know, with these experiments, there are side effects. There are things that go wrong. So, you know, a giant spider escaping is like the least uh, of their these people's worries. Digging a little more into the science, you know, he's trying to develop a non-organic food concentrate. Talks about atoms, using them as a bonding agent. But they've got to lick this problem of instability. You mentioned the, the real-life tarantulas. This is kind of interesting. They're, this movie has several science lessons. And in, in one of them, John Agar goes to the university and they talk about tarantulas. Their venom is not deadly. Yet, something of that size could be more deadly than anything that walked the earth. I think it's interesting that, that yeah, they, they, in this movie we get, of course, the realization, well, no, tarantulas are not as deadly as they're made out to be. You know, I know that perhaps a bit of foreshadowing here, we will be talking about these creepy crawlies a little later on this summer, and that'll be the flip side of it, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Those aren't as as not as venomous in that movie. Just kind of interesting is like generally they're they're portrayed, but we did kind of get that science lesson in this one. There was there was uh, some basis in reality, I guess. Yeah, you, you weren't dealing with just with the that well, nuclear bomb went off and things got big. Uh, there was trying to be an explanation of like well, what was going on, why you know why are we dealing with this this giant giant spider. And I like the fact, because I, I, I think I was reading that, you know, he, he had mentioned, of course, that Professor Deemer mentioned that the population by, I forget what year it was, but it was sometime in the future, mm-hmm. it was going to be like 
three and a half billion. And of course, well, he was obviously really shy of that population, you know, really kind of, I think he's almost, I don't even know what the world population is, to be honest with you, but I know that that's easily, I think by the time frame that he, he gave, I, I think they said that it was easily double what he anticipated. Cause we heard about that a lot in the seventies, the overpopulation and the population growth. And you know, that's why you have movies like Soylent Green pop up, you know, and, and dealing with too many people and the damage to the atmosphere and stuff like that. This was kind of cutting edge a little bit. It, it, it strayed away from the nuclear test to come up with a different way, a different reason why the tarantula was, was so big. And the mystery too, as well with the uh, injections that they're working on. And of course there comes the inevitable time when you've got to test it on a human and it gives people the effect that they've suffered from acromegalia, which that's what Rondo Hatton had, right? Yes. Yeah. So, but the thing is, it just, it speeds it up really fast. And that really kicks off the mystery with John Agar, who's the, the town doctor, but yet he becomes, as they call him, an amateur gumshoe because he just doesn't believe that that's the reason no one could get it that fast and die within a matter of like four days. He's really uh, wanting to get to the bottom of it. And that's when Steve Maricorday arrives into town. And, you know, 50s was a rosy, idyllic, idyllic time, but it had some issues. And this is a, around the treatment of women and poor Steve Maricorday. You know, we, we get comments like, let women vote. What do you get? Woman scientists. But she contributed to herself. She at one point says, science is science, but a girl must get her hair done. <laughs> so those are a little problematic. Those kind of things don't bother me as much as they do some people. Some people get really upset about that, but it's a sign of the times. And it's, it's kind of tongue in cheek. I mean, with her participating in it herself and saying things like that, you know, not just being the, the victim of common, like they're just all acknowledging that's how it is at that time. I know some people hate that phrase now, you know, sign of the times. Well, I, I think it, it, it depends on what you're talking about. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm approaching all of this being a, a middle-aged white guy. So uh, obviously that, that puts me in a different category, but I think when you're looking at movies from this time period, you know, or, you know, just older movies in general, there's going to be a lot of things that are not as acceptable or as common today. And sometimes stuff, you know, one thing that, that Carla will always comment on is like, my God, they smoked a lot. And it's like, you know, you always like go to the doctor's office, the doctor is sitting there puffing on a cigarette, you know, it's, it's just what people did, you know? And she was like, I didn't think people did it as much. And I said, well, I said, it depends, I think on who you hung around with. I said, my mom and dad smoked quite heavily. You know, I said, I can only imagine, like, if I was to walk in the house now, if you go in a, in a you know, time machine and go back to 1978, I would probably, like, immediately smell it, you know, now, because I'm so sensitive to it. At the time, it was just people did that. But as, as you know, the 80s, we started to see it less and less. And now, of course, it's just something that's not very common, certainly not in public, certainly not at the doctor's office. Same thing with, with the treatment of, of, of women or the treatment of African-Americans or, or Asian-Americans in films or really any type of diversity treated very differently in films back then. And, and sometimes things are going to be a little more uncomfortable than others. But sometimes like when you look at the treatment of women in these films, 
the women are always secondary. And sometimes no matter how smart they are and smart, intelligent, at some point, they're going to scream when the giant creak, you know, creature or giant spider or whatever comes attacking. That was their role in, in the film. Now, of course, we might have comic relief of, of some guy, right? The guy would, would maybe screaming or something. We see that in movies you know, now. There's a comic relief character that we didn't necessarily have back then. Women, of course, might take the lead now. Uh, you see something like, what is it, Jurassic World? You've got strong female leads battling the, the creatures of the day. I think that when you, when you go into these, these older films, I think you just have to, to put yourself in the mindset of it's 1955. And this is the world in 1955. And I think there's a charm to it. I think uh, looking back uh, on this, this time period, I don't, sometimes things may bother me, but it doesn't deter from my enjoyment of it because I, I'm able to kind of take myself back in, into that time period and say, it's 1955. What happened back then was different. I know that not everyone can do that, but I think that's the one way that you can really enjoy these movies. And the charm that they have is like, no, these aren't big budget spectacles from 2020. They were B pictures from the mid fifties and enjoy them for what they offer because there's a tremendous amount of fun and charm. And I think monster kids are able to do that. I think we're able to to go back and take a look at these films and and know that this is when they were made, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. They were made with a dollar fifty budget, and nope, none of the science is going to really make sense. And nope, we probably wouldn't really see monsters that looked like that, but we don't care. Uh, I think we can go back to our childhood. I think that's why we call us monster kids, right? We can go back and and when we step into a theater or fire up the DVD or whatever and watch these movies, we can go back to when we're 12 years old and, and appreciate these films for, for what they have to offer. Um, that's a huge advantage that we have over, over those people who've grown up and can't, can't be that, that childlike wonder when they watch these films. Step off my soapbox now. Yes, goodness. There is one more very scientific fact that I want to share. And I don't know if you know this. So everyone brace yourselves. This is this is revolutionary. Dynamite is tricky stuff. <laughs> I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta love it, right? It's like I don't I don't know when they're loading it up, it just kind of does seem like they're not being as cautious, you know, when they talk about it, it's tricky stuff and then it's just kind of like why do they keep it stored in town? Why can they go to every storefront and get, hey, can we use the dynamite you've got? Well, and why, you know, whenever you find like, it's kind of like, you know, uh, quicksand, right? I don't know, as a kid, quicksand was a real world threat. You were going to find it somewhere. And it's kind of like, everyone's always got these 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 warehouses of dynamite. Just like, if if. You or I, wherever we are right now, giant spider comes barreling down McCoy Street here in Shawnee, and I decide, well, I need to destroy that with dynamite. Where the hell would I find dynamite? <laughs> yeah, I'd be on some government list somewhere, and I'd have somebody knocking on my doors like, why do you have you know, 5,000 sticks of dynamite? Uh-huh. I'm saving it for the giant spider that might come barreling down the street. Yeah, I always, I always love that. 
stuff always pops up out of, of nowhere. They, and yeah, they do store it in the weirdest of places. Let's store it right downtown where this tricky stuff could go boom at any moment. We know in these movies they get their music from a lot of other sources and maybe not, they don't all entirely have original scores. Did you notice a particular uh, melody or snippet of music that was familiar? Well, gosh, these Universal movies all have kind of similar... Jack Arnold. Was it? Was there Creature music? Yeah, the Creature Stinger, yep. Wow, I, I, you know, I probably heard it, and it's just at this point, yeah. it's just like... Because it pops up in, in in other movies around the time period, yeah, not surprising. Yeah, awesome music. I mean, Universal Music was, I, I, so good. I can I can plug in some of these great soundtracks and just listen to the music. We have a show that is broadcast locally here on Friday nights called Film Music Friday. Daryl Brogdon, who people might know from the Retro Cocktail Hour, I know like Mitch Gonzalez up up in. Uh, your neck of the woods. He listens to the retro cocktail hour. You've listened to the retro. Yeah, yeah. Daryl does this show now on Friday nights called film music Friday. He does a two hour block of movie music, hmm. which it, during a time period when they usually play classical music. Well, I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand. He has done salutes to the music of particular people, but he's done, you know, monster movies. He's done monster movie music. Two hours of, of just listening to these soundtracks. It's like now Daryl Brogdon is a monster kid. He loves these movies. I mean, you know, he does Cinema Go Go and 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 the great events. And and he just yesterday, last night, I'm on Facebook. He posted a picture of his lava lamp, and he says, you know, lava lamps as they're warming up, they can look really creepy. And he says that this looks like the alien from Invaders from Mars. And it did, <laughs> totally. It was this red glob. It was like, absolutely, the big giant head. So uh, if anyone, Film Music Friday, doing this little sidestep here with the music, you love movie music, and I know a lot of us do, Film Music Friday is a show you can get anywhere in the world. The Kansas Public Radio, I think it may be kpr.org, but do a search for Kansas Public Radio. Film Music Friday, they've got all the shows right there, and you can click on it and play it anywhere in the world and uh, do a search for uh, some of their monster themes that they've done or science fiction themes, or they've done music from, I think they did a Ray, Ray Harryhausen one. So uh, a lot of great stuff. And, and yeah, definitely they played Creature from the Black Lagoon music, which I think has also been played on Retro Cocktail Hour. I think he's done some Halloween specials, and that music is just iconic so anything else to say on tarantula any trivia or any other thoughts yeah i got a little bit of trivia here and a question for you on, on a couple of the stuff so uh robert fresco of course did some other films monolith monsters alligator people one of the movies was invasion of the animal people with john carradine have you ever seen this uh not only have i never seen it i've never heard of it Okay, so animal people invasion of the animal people. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think I've heard of it before, and it's like for some reason I couldn't find it, and and I don't know if it's maybe a movie that has another title, but you know it's John Carradine, so we're obviously dealing with a uh, a list you know material here. I'm sure. Uh, anyway, I saw that and I was like, well, that's this kind of it's kind of stood out to me. I do got a few other little tidbits, though. John Agar, we were talking about all of his long list of movies. I was curious when John Agar passed, and he, he's actually been gone almost 10 years, or almost 20 years now. 
He died in 2002 at the age of 81. I was curious why we didn't see more from uh, Mara Corday. And uh, she actually quit acting shortly after marrying actor Richard Long, who played Jared Barkley on The Big Valley, was in The House on Haunted Hill. And, and The Professor. Yes, absolutely. According to IMDb, which take that with a grain of salt, it was a tumultuous marriage. I don't know. I, I kind of thought Richard Long was a good guy, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I know he did die very young. He died in 1974 of a heart attack. And so shortly after that, she returned to acting, but only in, in, four, ro- in four films, in small roles in Clint Eastwood films. Apparently they were friends. And so she was in The Gauntlet, Sudden Impact, Pink Cadillac, and The Rookie. And she is still alive and well. She's now uh, 91 years old. A little bit of uh, trivia then, of course, talking about Clint Eastwood, he played the Jet Squadron leader. Uh, we didn't see his face in this one. He had, he was kind of covered up, but you hear his voice. Of course, Clint Eastwood's also in Revenge of the Creature, getting his start in a couple of these monster films uh, before he made it big in Rawhide, uh, which then led to his spaghetti Western films. And of course, by that point, Clint Eastwood uh, was well on his way to becoming a legendary actor and, and director. So Nestor Paiva, his last role was as a police chief in, um, technically his last role was as a police chief in They Saved Hitler's Brain in 1968. But the footage was actually from The Madman of Mandoras, which was released in 63. So his last real film role was a movie called The Spirit is Willing in 1967, which was actually released uh, after his death. He died in 1966 at the age of 61. He had cancer. Think about, remember, we mentioned that he had 312 credits, all of that by the time he was 61. So had he had he lived and continued acting probably for another 20 years doing, uh, you know, character roles, uh, gosh, he, who knows how many film roles he would have done in that time. I didn't catch this, but the character of Townsend, and I'm not even sure who Townsend was, was played by Raymond Bailey. Uh, better known as Mr. Drysdale from the Beverly Hillbilly. Oh, I missed him. Henry Mancini did contribute a little bit to the soundtrack, uncredited. Henry Mancini was beginning to make a name for himself around this time period through some TV soundtracks. He did work on Peter Gunn and Mr. Lucky. The spider that we see, the tarantula, would return in The Incredible Shrinking Man. That's the same spider that plays the lead, plagues the lead character in that film. And the stained glass windows in the funeral parlor apparently return in Psycho, supposedly. Hmm. Again, Universal Studios, they have a huge warehouse where they store all their props. I've been there. It's awesome. And, you know, as, as I've talked about, you have... This aisle is nothing but spears and shields, and this aisle is nothing but phones and computers, and that's where they go to get their props. So the stained glass windows would resurface, apparently, in Psycho. That's about all I've got on on Tarantula. It's easy to find. You can rent it on Amazon Prime. It is available on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. You can get that set for like $25, I think. You can probably find it used... Uh, no, it's not in the set. It's an individual. That's right. It's an individual Blu-ray for $25. You can find it used for about 15 
Um, it was on the out-of-print DVD set, Classic Sci-Fi Ultimate Collection, which might be the best way to go. Um, you get the Mole People, the Incredible Shrinking Man, the Monolith Monsters, and Monster on Campus, and you can find those sets for about $10 or $15. And I think the print uh, is really good on those movies. Now, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the Blu-ray. Do you have the Blu-ray for this? I do, and I didn't comment, but since you brought it up, I think the Blu-ray doesn't do it any justice. I think the, well, first of all, this film does not have as many stock footage shots as most, but it has some and they're very obvious. There's also a scene at the end in the town where the spider's coming over the hill where it's almost like it's forced perspective. They want the characters in front to be crisp and clear, but then the town kind of fuzzy, except I don't know if that was intentional or not. And it doesn't look real good on Blu-ray. And I just wonder if because of the high definition I'd, I'd really like to compare, watch the DVD and see if it looks a little better. I, I suspect that it would. Yeah, that's one of those cases where sometimes upgrades are not always better than their predecessor. I know there's been a lot of debate about the uh, Lord of the Rings Blu-ray upgrades. Now, I, I, I think they're even in 4K now, but I know that there's been some comparisons because people are, the colors change from one to the next. And there's been debate of whether Really, is the Blu-ray really the accurate color? I mean, a lot of people think that the uh, DVDs are better. Some of the scenes on the Blu-ray have now substantially darker, and you can't see the characters as well. You know, it's so hard. You know, sometimes it's just not a... I don't automatically pull the trigger on, on upgrades, especially in these older films. I... You know, with a lot of the universal releases, unless they are been remastered, really all you're getting is an is a an upgrade, um, and sometimes an upgrade doesn't necessarily mean a better picture quality. And I know some people would disagree with me, but when the first set came out, I know that they did do remastered work on like the some of the films at least that were that were on that Blu-ray, and they did look better. Dracula, for example, was remastered and looked substantially better than had ever been put out on DVD. But some of the others, I, what you're getting, it's kind of like the 3D technology. You know, if you use a 3D camera, then 3D that you see on the big screen is amazing. But if you film and then run it through a 3D uh, process after the 3D technology is, there's no comparison. And that's a big reason why 3D became flash in the pan again, because James Cameron used 3D cameras to make Avatar and the 3D effects were amazing in that movie, but a lot of other films were just running it through uh, a process and people began to notice that, well, this isn't as good as, as what I thought 3D was. Well, it's because it was just, it wasn't filmed with the 3D camera. 3D cameras are big, they're expensive, and it's easier to run it through the 3D process. So there's websites out there that can do a compare and contrast. And so I think maybe do a little research because sometimes Blu-ray upgrades are amazing. Uh, and it's certainly if you have a bootleg and something comes out on a Blu-ray, then, you know, which I know we'll talk about like with attack of the crab monsters. I think, yeah, that's obviously the best way to go sometimes is to do an upgrade. If you've got it on DVD. I don't know. Might do a little bit of research to make sure it's worth the extra, extra money to upgrade. No matter how you look at it, Tarantula is pretty easy to find. Whether you find it on Amazon Prime, Blu-ray, or DVD, it's out there, and that's that's a good thing. 
Yeah, and it's very entertaining, very watchable and rewatchable. I really, really like it. But Jumpin' Jupiter, my tummy's growling. I want to go get something from the concession stand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll go this time. What would you like? Good and well, plenty, right? Well, do what? Good and plenties, right? Uh, no, I'll pass on the good and plenties. I'm, I, you know, well, I got to have a hot dog. I mean, they, they always make it look so good on those intermission reels. And, you know, one of the most popular candies in 1958 was Chuckles. So I'm going to have a Chuckles to go with my my hot dog and uh, a nice, cool, refreshing Coca-Cola. And I'm going to have the old standby popcorn and uh, I'll just get that now. And then after the second movie, probably go back and get something else. I'll get some have a steaming hot cup of coffee. I might need that at the last movie so we can get home (laughs) while I'm awake. Well, I'll go run, do that, hang loose. And when I come back, I guess we'll watch, what, The Deadly Mantis? Deadly Mantis is next. I'm sorry, sir. This is a private mountain. But I only wanted it. This mountain is reserved for patrons of drive-in theaters. But, 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 but It's a supply depot for all sorts of good things, which people can get at the snack bar. Like soft drinks, hot dogs, good hot coffee, candy bars of all kinds, delicious popcorn, and refreshing ice cream treats. But I am a patron of this drive-in. Well, why didn't you say so? Be our guest. the bodies. Easy. In all the kingdom of the living, there is no more deadly or voracious creature than the praying mantis. You think you'll be able to drive it out to sea? I hope so. Every device of military science, every defensive weapon, radar, planes, rockets, marshaled to destroy a thousand tons of beastly fury. A monster leaving a trail of carnage spreading panic across a continent. Give me alert button. Yes, sir. Nothing in its path was safe. Not the planes in the sky. Not the ships at sea. Not for me. Or the vehicles on the ground. You boys might just as well go back. There aren't any bodies. And then this most dangerous monster that ever lived challenged the security of our cities.
Richard Look, who I found at the concession stand. Well, it's Mr. Turek. Hello, He's sir. Turing. We didn't know you were going to be here. Well, you know, when you see great movies on the billboard, you got to stop by the drive-in to catch them on the big screen. I mean, it's, it's what it's there for. Come on, man. It's Deadly Mantis, Tarantula, Attack of the Crab Mon- I mean, what's, what triple feature could this be? But divine monster goodness. Such a coincidence running into you in the concession stand. What, uh, what was your treat of choice? What did you get? Got an unsweetened tea <laughs> and sugar-free candy. Oh, okay. I'll edit that part out. <laughs> no, no. How about this? I got myself a nice popcorn and water. Very good. Got to have popcorn. That's the bare minimum. Got to have popcorn when you're watching your monster movies. You know, that way it's just great. And then the, the car has that popcorn smell for weeks mm. and weeks and weeks. <laughs> and the good thing is we're in 1958, so water was still free back here. So you didn't have to pay you know, $3 for the bottle. How do you feel about Good and Plenty, Steve? Oh, I love Good and Plenty. Oh, I mean, no. Plenty, when I was growing up, was one of my fav- favorite treats. Right there with Mike and Ike, Good and Plenty's. Oh. Mike and Ike's, I'm, I'm, I'm all for Mike and Ike's, but no, we, Good and Plenty. Okay, did you ever have Good and Fruity? Yes, I like That's- those too. Um, Snow Cone was always something I would, I would get at a movie theater on occasion too. Oh, yeah, yeah. They still make snow cones. They... We were talking about they don't make they made good and fruities a couple of years ago, but then they quit making them again. They've made them, I can't find them anywhere. Sugar babies, sugar babies used to be my candy of choice back in the day. And me, it was bottle caps. Do you remember bottle caps? Oh yeah, they were Root sort beer. of like sweet tarts, but they had they did have that fizzy thing, like carbonation kind of. I like I love the root beer flavored bottle bottle cap. That was my favorite flavor. Yeah. You guys well, ever see, get the wax lips thing? You know where you get the wax. You know, the lips, you put it in your mouth, you just start chewing it up. But for a while, you got those funny looking lips just sticking out. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. Steve, we mention you all the time on the podcast, but why don't you just toot your own horn a little bit? Tell the our listeners what you are up to, what you do in podcast and otherwise. I'm just a regular guy, just like you guys. I mean, we, you know, it just, we just have to have fun and talk about monster stuff and um, our horror stuff. This case, it's particularly monster movies, which, I watched growing up, but with um, Ben and Michaela, my older two children, we do a podcast together, which both you guys have been on for various episodes, um, diecast movie podcast, where we do um, talk about movies and we also do interviews. And um, something we started recently was some discussions on different topics, the movies. One was the first one was law, but eventually I'm going to get some independent filmmakers. And we're going to talk about independent filmmaking and, and the, uh, the struggles and the, rewards and why it's still a necessary thing which it's been since the the beginning of film i didn't tell you i did listen to the lawyer episode i thought it was great i really i like that concept have a lawyer watch to kill a mockingbird and tell us how accurate it is you're not in in any particular format i mean you've kind of created your own format for the show which i think is is what sets you aside from some other shows i mean that's 10 million podcasts out there that people can listen to. It's going down a different path is what makes it fun. You've created your own path with the show. And I think that's uh, fantastic. And you are an yeah, excellent interviewer. You were nominated for a Rondo award for your interview with Dunnigan. Donnie Dunnigan. If you ever get a chance to meet Donnie in um, a convention, 
he is a joy to be with. When you're talking with him, you'll feel like you're the most important person in the world. And I thought it was interesting. There are certain things. Yes, he was a child actor, but there's so many more things in his life that he had done that a lot of people don't realize. And, you know, and we talk about that during the interview and he's very humorous. His stories are funny, especially a story with um, Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi and other things. And um, his story in the Marine Corps, which involves Bambi because he was the voice of the young Bambi. He's still doing the convention circuit and he's in his um, mid to late eighties. Still rides a Harley, still does 30 pushups a day. It, it, it was, when he tells me he's slacking, he does less than 30. I'm like, I think I think the three of us together could probably do thirty in a month. You know, in my in my youth, when I was much uh, younger and much skinnier, I couldn't do thirty push-ups. I, I have no shame in admitting that. It is what it is. He's he's um a, a marvel of keeping yourself in excellent shape and his outlook on life. He's so focused on the current and the future, you know, and it's it's just amazing. And he's a doctorate in mathematical physics. Wow. So he's a brilliant, brilliant person to me. We didn't talk about that in the interview, but I didn't know that until he handed me his business card. And it, I opened it up. And I was like, you have a doctorate in mathematical physics? And he goes, yeah, I told you I was good with numbers. And I'm like, no, you're that good. <laughs> <laughs> but your interviews are always so well-researched and you go in depth and you ask questions that you don't hear other places. Just anyone who has not should really check this out. And of course, my favorite was David Selby, of course, because of Dark Shadows. You could tell you kind of caught him a little off guard. He wasn't expecting the detail and the attention that you gave to preparing for the interview. So it, it really does stand out. It's different. You do a great job. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. And for those wondering why it's called Die Cast Movie Podcast, it's because we roll a die to decide what movie who gets to pick the movie and we roll another die to decide the genre of the movie. That's why it's called die cast. Cause we like literally cast a die. And Rich has been two episodes, the seventh seal and beast master. And Jeff brought a, a, a wonderful musical onto us. The pirate movie with his Your number one rated his, show, right? The pirate movie. <laughs> <laughs> You both are on our number one movie episode. It's number two overall. David Selby's number one overall episodes and views or listens. And but number two, you both are in that one also. It's a mad, 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 mad world, which was a, was a labor of love. But that's our longest episode. But that movie is long. But so many different people helped out, and that, I think that was movie where or not an episode which was all the pieces put together made that to be what it is. So many different people, Rod Barnett, Derek Cook, Cheese and Blank, and Ansel Farage, Joshua Kennedy. I mean, uh, Nick Brown. I mean, there's so many people from different podcasts that were on this study or two off the top of my head. And I'm sorry, listening, and I did. I apologize. But it was just, it was a lot of people, and it really made for a fun episode. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for asking us to participate. That was, that was a fun revisit. So I, I think. How many hours was that? I mean, uh, six, seven, ten hours. I mean, <laughs> it was um, three hours and forty-five minutes, or fifteen minutes less than the Sam Urban interview. <laughs> or 15, 15 minutes more. I'm sorry, fifteen minutes more than the Sam Urban interview. <laughs> and not that much longer than the movie itself. So basically, it takes like ten times the amount of people to to amass the the entertainment value of a Sam Urban. So uh, we Sam's awesome. 
He he has a wealth of knowledge that he loves to share. Just a testament to, to your interviewing abilities. Highly recommend people tune in and listen to your show. I am woefully behind uh, listening to it, but it is one of the few podcasts that is still on my queue. Others have, have come and gone because I've got limited time and, and you're, you're still there. Highly recommend people check it out. Oh, thank you. And um, the good part, I think, because we're so diverse, you know, there might be there might be a couple episodes that don't float your boat, but then because of the role to die, the role of chance in the interviews, you never know what's coming up from episode to episode, which makes it nice that, you know, you're going to hit some people who are going to like one thing, some people are going to like another thing, but it's like the movie of the week which we always used to watch when we were growing up. You, you, never, you watch it because your parents are going to watch it. You're, you're stuck watching it. And you, if it was a drama, you're watching a drama. If it was action, action. If it was whatever, whatever. You know? and, and I think, that's, I think that's nice to have that blend. Well, yeah, you know, the two movies I've done, uh, Seven Seal and Beastmaster, I don't think you'll ever <laughs> see those in a double feature. <laughs> and let alone if you were to add pirate movie in for a, a triple feature, that, that might break some people. Uh, that's a triple feature. <laughs> I'm not even sure what would be the, I don't know how you would even do the order on that. Well, what do we all think of, of this movie? We just saw the deadly mantis. I remember watching a deadly mantis, you know, every so often on Saturdays when they had the monster movie matinee, because there, there was monster movie matinee, there was sci-fi theater and there was Kung Fu theater, you know? So, so on rainy days on Saturdays, that's what you were doing from noon till six, get your Godzilla <laughs> fix, get your, Bruce Lee fix, and then of course you had your whatever the sci-fi was. But Deadly Man is a pop-up in either monster movie or sci-fi. So sometimes, you know, you got you, you know you had a chance to see a giant monster movie, and you still got to see a giant monster movie on the sci-fi part, depending on how it works. So I've seen it at least 10, 12 times growing up, you know, just for the rotation. And I got lucky enough to see it on the big screen a few years ago. Monster Bash when they did their theater thing in the giant monsters and they had King Kong versus Godzilla, Gojira, and all that stuff. It was my first time seeing Gojira on the big screen, and they had all these other movies to film. The Giant Claw, oh, it was just my, the Deadly Mantis. I mean, Ben was with me, my older son. We just had a blast. He was seeing them all, a lot of these movies for the first time ever, and what a way to see them! But the way they were intended to be seen on the big screen in a theater eating your popcorn, having your favorite beverage. Oh, I mean, you just, and then in between you're getting a hot dog. I mean, cause you got to eat something more than just popcorn when you're there for six movies. Rich, what's your history with Deadly Manus? Oh, wow. Nothing like that. Back in the day, a lot of these classic movies just weren't playing on a TV station near me. When we got cable, we got, you know, Channel 41 out of Kansas City. And that's where I began seeing a lot of movies. But Deadly Mantis wasn't, ever one of the movies that was part of their film library. TV stations back then would have film libraries, and and that's why a lot of times things would cycle through. Deadly Mantis, oh, man, 15 years ago, maybe, was my first viewing of it. And, it, and again, I'm trying to think, you know, did I ever have this on, on VHS? I don't know that I did. I, I might not have ever seen this until I got that, Classic Sci-Fi Ultimate Collection Volume 2. That may have been a first-time viewing for me of The Deadly Mantis. Loved it, though. As soon as I saw it, I had immediate comparisons to Them, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, one of my all-time favorite giant 
bug movies. There's some similarities to it, definitely. Some differences, not quite on the same level for me as them. Just saw this as recent as last year. Saw it on an episode of Sven Gulli. Uh, I didn't think that I had seen it for a while. But then once we started watching the movie, I'm like, oh, hang on a second. This seems familiar. And remembered that I just watched it uh, a year ago. So not nearly as many times as Steve. No. Uh, what about you? I have a very special first watching of this. It was three weeks ago in the home of Richard Chamberlain. <laughs> that is the first time I saw The Deadly Mantis. <laughs> you caught me off guard with that. Yeah, uh, we're taking your monster movie card away from you now, Jeff. And I watched it again because I got a little sleepy the first time. It was late. kind of For me, it was late when we were watching that, Rich. So I wanted to watch it again to make sure I didn't miss anything. Well, we'll we talk did about our feelings about it later, but uh, I'll just say I got sleepy again. We did a double feature that night, and this we you know we were watching Attack of the Crab Monsters and then the the Deadly Mantis. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it was not as fresh. Whereas Crab Monsters, I was like really tuned in, even Tarantula because it was kind of like I hadn't seen it for a while. Deadly Mantis is like every with every scene, I was like, well, this looks familiar. I just we just saw this. I think was we'll talk about later on in the show which, you know, after we see Attack of the Crab Monsters here on the big drive-in screen, I think, though, Deadly Mantis is probably my least favorite of the three. And even though Deadly Mantis probably had a bigger budget than Attack of the Crab Monsters, it's a notch below for me. Now, that said, it's a giant bug movie. It's still a lot of fun, and it's definitely perhaps more polished than Attack of the Crab Monsters because, I mean, we're dealing with a universal classic. But I think, you know, as far as giant bug movies go, this one probably has the most stock footage of of any giant bug movie, at least that I can remember. Uh, I'm sure there's probably a few others out there. Maybe Beginning of the End might have a lot of stock footage. It's been a while since I've seen that. There was a lot of stock footage in this, and and some of it worked well. Some of it left me scratching my head a little bit. The footage of the fleeing Eskimos (laughs) kind of stands out as like, what are we seeing here? I mean, it's kind of cool because it does give you kind of a bigger palette of where the, the mantis is at, but it does kind of stand out really from the rest of the film. And trivia note, that's actually from a movie called SOS Iceberg, not Ice, but Iceberg from 1933. I know nothing about that movie other than that's where the footage came from. The stock footage, you can use stock footage and it can work well, or sometimes it can kind of stand out as a sore thumb. This one is kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes it works, sometimes it's it's a bit of a, a bit of a sore thumb. And did they speed up that Eskimo scene? It looked like the people were not moving naturally. They were moving really, really fast. It did seem like maybe how it was originally filmed. One thing with silent movies, for example, is that there's a whole process involved. Ben Modell is a music accompaniment. He does a lot of original scores for silent films. He is a silent film aficionado. I had a chance to meet him a couple of years ago. He does a weekly now for well over a year now, ever since the pandemic started, he's been doing a weekly Sunday afternoon silent film, usually double or triple feature that's free on YouTube. And he does live music as he's playing these silent films. 
he has a whole presentation that he gives on film speeds. And it was common. That's why like a lot of silent films, if they're not played at the proper speed now, tend to sometimes be fast or not as natural is that there's a process that the films have to go through to naturalize the process now because of the, of the difference in technology. Actually, he plays that into the name of his company under crank productions is actually about that difference in speed. It may have been that when the movie was made in 33, they may have intentionally sped it up, or it may have been that some of the footage was used might have been silent film footage. I don't know. I don't know enough about the movie, but that would make sense if they were taking just some old film footage and incorporating it into a 1933 movie, why it didn't seem quite as natural. And then this movie would have just picked up that film footage from the 33 movie, wouldn't have done anything to it and just plopped it in the middle of this movie. And that's why it doesn't have a natural appearance to it. That makes sense. I think it's interesting that I'm the only one that's coming from it from a childhood nostalgia type perspective. Because yeah. Rich said he saw it the first time like 15 years ago. We know Grandpa Rich, that was when he was like... <laughs> yeah, back <laughs> Who knows back. how old he was? Not even going to grace that with a comment. I'm a proud grandfather. Thank you very much. I mean, Rich, is the rumors true that your first language is Sanskrit? <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was like cave drawings, actually. I, I was... <laughs> out of the stick figures that give the three-dimensional appearance that that's all my work uh, i'm proud of it thank you that's a good you're point like, Steve, like, but uh, and i'm sorry do you want to say anything more about that childhood perspective i was gonna say that and yours of course jeff you saw it just recently i mean within a you know like a month ago so i think when it comes to as you were saying how you were sleeping how rich follows least i think i'm gonna have a different perspective than both of you present when you're watching it when you're younger you're a lot more forgiving on certain things than you would be when like when i watch it now you know so it's like but i'm still able to put that perspective in because i'm watching the certain scenes i'm like ah, oh, this is this is great nostalgia but they made three different versions of the mantis you know from what i read and one of them i thought this was amazing they made a 200 foot long mantis I guess it was you know, for the tunnel scenes. Then he had a six foot one and a one foot one for flying scenes and other stuff. And he had a live mantis that was on the uh, Washington Monument. But it was just amazing how you can, can you imagine walking on the set and there's this 200 foot long <laughs> mantis. The two smaller models are built and one was six foot, one was one foot. And that these were used for sheen, the scenes where the mantis walked or flew. So if they're walking or flying, it's probably the six foot or the one foot. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that a, a 200 foot by 40 foot mantis with a 150 foot wingspan with a hydraulic system had to be the one in the tunnel. You know, I'm just, I'm just guessing, but you know, it's, yeah. Um, there were a couple of scenes where he had it outside of the tunnel where you could see it big, you know, and then he might've used it also in those parts too to show it. And it really looked, I thought, you know, 1950s, you know, it really looked great. See this, this giant mantis creature, you know, it, 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 you could tell where he spent the money. Uh, the money but was on the mantis. I think the fact that they, they went that route, you've got to give it up for, for the movie because think about what beginning, uh, beginning of the end, right? It's just 
grasshopper stock footage that they throw in that doesn't work. All I mean, they base, yeah, they did some creative things by putting it, you know, on basically models and stuff like that, you know, and, and obviously they ran into problems with corralling all those, you know, grasshoppers. But I think to, to be bold enough to go this step and say, no, we're going to create our own. Okay. You know, from a realistic standpoint, might not look as realistic at times as the grasshopper in beginning of the end. But I think that the the advantage is, is that I don't know if they've done right, it, it can add a, a, a level of believability, much like them, right? With the big giant ants and them has done so incredibly well. It set the bar pretty high. And I think for that regard, that the, they succeed in this movie. I think that one thing you talked about, Steve, was, was you know, you're looking at it from the, the childlike perspective, and we'll probably mention that again as we talk about Attack of the Crab Monsters after, after we see it tonight, is that when you see a movie by itself, you're, you're not comparing it as much as if you see a double or triple feature, because then all of a sudden, this movie tarantula is incredibly fresh in, in my mind, so that's the comparison. I'm going to compare it to the Deadly Mantis and Attack of the Crab Monsters will be compared to Mantis and, and Tarantula. And sometimes that may taint the perspective a little bit because you're going to start to really compare and contrast John Agar versus William Hopper versus Russell Johnson. You're going to compare, well, Tarantula looked the most believable because it was a real Tarantula. So what about Deadly Mantis compared to the giant crab monsters that have human faces and I think that sometimes is maybe a little unfair when we do that. That's just natural, right? It's just like, I think that the movie going experience can impact your thoughts. You compare and contrast sometimes unfairly or your movie going experience. If you're in a theater and there's people talking or it's hot, you know, or it's not comfortable, you're not going to enjoy a movie. Steve, what you said about your childlike memories of it, not childlike, your real child memories. I guess I respect that, but I have a hard time thinking that a kid wouldn't think this is boring. And that's my biggest problem with this movie. I mean, it starts out, it's like a documentary. And I, I, I get, I like, kind of like that. It gives it a touch of realism, but you know, not only is it the science about the North pole and the South pole and the dew line and all this, it's like a geography lesson too. And that goes on a really long time before the movie even starts. And to me, that sets the pace and just the movie's really slow for me. Well, you guys got to remember this movie was touching on something that was used later on in the movie Jurassic Park, the chaos effect. They didn't call it that in the movie, but they said, for every ops action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. Mm-hmm. So you have, an, you have a volcano in Antarctica, according to the movie, exploding, which calls in the Arctic Circle a um, iceberg, or not iceberg, but ice flow to fall, which unearthed the mantis. Isn't that not the chaos effect? Just saying, this movie was ahead of its time in some aspects. Yes, we did learn a lot about radar and how radar was being utilized in the um, North, upper North America. But you got to remember, when I'm watching as a child, like any child watching it on TV, what else are you doing? You've got your giant dinosaur toys. 
you know, you're playing along with them. So when it gets to the part where the scientists are explaining what's going on, which was in virtually almost all these 50s movies, the scientists would talk. That's when you went to the bathroom, Jeff. That's when you're playing with the toys. You never heard that part when you were a child. You came back for the, when the monster, when you're, you know, that's what All you came I'm going to say is, like, okay. if you're going to the bathroom during this, I hope it's number two. Because <laughs> you're going to be in there a long time. Well, you came back to play with your toys, and then you just watched the screen when your stuff came back up. So I'm just saying, you know, it's just, I never really paid attention as a youth to all that stuff about the radar and things like that. So I became, you know, you become older yeah. and like with the stock footage, you don't really notice it as much when you're six years old, the stock footage, you know, you're just, you're just going through it's army, it's tanks, it's, it's guns, man. Yeah. We got to think about this 1957. Yeah. That's stock footage that we will, you know, now of course we're a bit jaded, right. With stock footage, 1957, Stock footage was something that that you wouldn't see pop up in every single movie. These movies, you would see it, and then you're going on to the next film. You might never see the Deadly Mantis again until it popped up on late night TV, you know, years later. Stock footage was less of a a negative for films in 1957. It was a, a necessary to flesh out the film sometimes. But... 1957 mentality would have actually thought that that was enhancing because, oh, wow, we we were seeing aircraft and we're seeing military. It's kind of like the, as I was doing some research, the uh, Ground Observer Corps didn't know anything about this, that people looking for the planes or actually looking for the mantis in the sky. That was stock footage of a real group, the Ground Observer Corps. Mm -hmm. They had existed since World War II and their job was to look for suspicious aircraft. I didn't know about that until, you know, I did the research. I thought, okay, well, that's kind of cool and interesting to note that this movie was made in 57. I don't know when the stock footage was from, but that they were only a year away from being dismantled. The Ground Observer Corps ceased to exist in 1958. Kind of cool. I mean, to me, that that's a little, once you see a movie and then maybe the next time you see it, you're going to know these little tidbits. And so it's kind of cool to rewatch these movies a few times. And as we get older, the, the, the key point is, and it's a struggle, is to, to keep that monster kid mentality, which you know I, I think will come into play in, in, in a, Attack of the Crab Monsters, especially. It's that to enjoy that movie, you know, you're gonna have to kind of put on some some rose-colored glasses a little bit. And once you do, and once you get that. I'm a monster kid. I'm, I'm still that 10-year-old, 12-year-old kid. Yeah, I'm not going to care as much about this negative or this negative. I'm going to just focus on, you know what? I'm just enjoying the fun. It's it's a lighthearted 75-minute movie. Now, when you start comparing it, like we're going, you know, we are here. I see where Jeff is saying is that, yeah, it it does struggle a little bit when compared to movies like Tarantula, which is a, you know, admittedly, I think a better film or them but now i think that deadly mantis is probably better than again probably better at least technically than the beginning of the end is yeah, it better? There's better but there's also like entertaining you know when you're talking about quality or and, and that sometimes that you know the entertainment value comes from the the cast I mean, you know, as, as we said, if you've got a solid director, you got a solid script, 
you need a good cast to be able to elevate the movie. And that's where I think this movie does, it lacks some of that big name recognition because uh, looking at the three main cast members, you've got Craig Stevens as Colonel Joe Parkman. At the time or thereabouts, Craig Stevens was a pretty well-known guy. He did 114 episodes of Peter Gunn. Peter Gunn's a show that, because of syndication problems has been kind of forgotten by everyone knows the theme, Peter Gunn theme, right? High school bands, middle school bands play it. The TV show doesn't really play that much. Uh, and, it, and it can, I've seen it. It's a show that doesn't, it's not really dated. It pops up in the middle of the night on me TV. When I was a kid growing up, it never popped up on TV anywhere because it wasn't readily available in syndication. But so at the time, though, Craig Stevens was well known, not so much now, because the one big thing he did was Peter Gunn, and not too many people know about it. William Hopper, a little more known, he played Dr. Uh, Jackson. Perry Mason is a show that is widely in syndication, has been ever since it was on. He was in 271 episodes as Paul Drake. And so if, if you ever flip the channels, you you know who that character is from, from Perry Mason from a monster movie perspective. He only did a couple of other films that would fit the genre of 20 million miles to earth and return of Dr. X with Humphrey Bogart, which is not a big feather in anyone's cap. The female lead of the movie, Marge Blaine was played by Alex Talton, 45 film credits, mostly small roles or, or TV roles really didn't do anything else from a monster movie perspective. So sometimes that can enhance, you know, if you see a familiar face, oh, that's John Agar, or, hey, that's the professor from Gilligan's Island. Immediately you're like, okay, I'm a little warmer. I'm a little fuzzier. This one, I think, suffers a little bit from that instant facial recognition. But, you know, so then that that requires that, that there may be a little bit more of the the story or the special effects needs to be elevated a little bit to help elevate your overall enjoyment of it because you're not getting it from that immediate facial recognition at the time i don't think perry i'm not sure when perry mason started but it was probably about this time i don't think it had started yet peter gunn i think had been on tv so people would have recognized who he was but now not as much Peter Gunn started, came out the year after. Okay, so again, so then at theaters, 1957, people wouldn't have known. But upon re-watching it a few years later, when Peter Gunn was fresh in people's mind, Perry Mason was fresh in people's minds, the movie would have had an, people would have had an immediate connection. It's like, hey, that's Paul Drake. Hey, that's Peter Gunn. I don't know. That's just a theory of mine. Perry Mason came out in 1957. I think you're just flipping the two. So Perry okay. Mason... Depending on when this film would have came out, what month or whatever, it came yeah, out in May. So May. it would have been before Perry Mason. Perry Mason probably came out in the fall of '57. So yeah, you're, you're, it, it beat it, you know, the movie beat both of their by by months or a year, both of their big TV shows. So here we are in 1958 at the drive-in. People are probably going to recognize Paul Drake. They're going to recognize mm-hmm. Peter Gunn. Another problem I had with with these characters is you don't know for a long time who the lead character is. It goes on and on, and I'm like, okay, well, who's who are we 
you know, who's our protagonist? Who are we supposed to identify or care about? And that doesn't happen for a long time. Craig Stevens, the Colonel character, he was always taking the flights out to go check on everything and always having that Lieutenant go with him. So you knew from the military side, from my, you know, that he was the main guy from the military part. And then you're right. When it went to DC, then it switches over to the other two leads. And, but, and then when all three of them get together, they're all together. So it's hard to say which one of the three, but a part of me likes that a little bit because instead of having just one person, you had all three of them pretty much equal, which is rare, you know, you had like a, you know, like a female as a, as a, as an equal with the three in the, in the fifties. And the other thing I thought that was interesting, they all were virtually around the same age. They're all within five years of each other at the time of filming, you know, so that's not often where you get age appropriateness through the female lead, the male leads and stuff like that. Cause a lot of times they'll have that big difference where it's very noticeable, but there were Craig Stevens and, and Alex Talton, there was only what, like a, a couple year difference in their ages. I think, I think she was younger by two years. So it's a very age appropriate. Steve, would you call those characters a thruple? <laughs> you could, you could. I, I think, I think the doctor was more interested in his, his um, scientific work um, yeah. than. Well, I'll follow that up with, so you're right. And I appreciate that, but sure the colonel is the the main guy there but then they go to dc and so you think that william hopper dr nedrick jackson you think he and the girl are going to be the romantic thing and you think okay i'm going to watch their relationship develop and then it's not it's not till they get together that you know she's going to get with the colonel so i, I don't know it was just it was weird for me another that that contributed for me to it feeling like it was slow what they could have done if they changed the script a little bit was something with Preacher from the Black Lagoon, where the doctor and Marge could have had a relationship prior to the movie starting. Everybody would have believed it because they worked together, you know, they had a maybe have a relationship together. Maybe that's why she left the newspapers to become the the work on the museum magazine, you know, because she talked about how she was a reporter and a, and a different prior to that. So that all could have been like those little pieces, like why she left the one part to do the other thing. And then the, um, the third wheel could have been the Colonel, the action guy. I think they switched it up because the action guy was the Colonel. And, you know, in the, in the fifties, you wanted the action guy to get the girl at the end of the movie. That was the typical ending where not the, you don't usually go to the scientific doctor unless he's also the action guy. How did you all take the whole treatment of Marge Blaine when she arrives at the base and all of the men going gaga over her and the one rich i'm hoping you can tell us about that actor that was the the main he was a subordinate but he was like the yeah. main subordinate the one that really went gaga over march the corporal I, yeah i don't have paul any. smith no yeah, paul smith rich or steve do you okay he was familiar to me but i don't know why well amazing that he's still alive today he's 92 years old he was on the Doris Day show. Um, I just I'm looking that him, uh, exaggerated uh, performance. Uh, and I don't know if it was comic relief. There was nothing to be relieved from at the moment. So I don't know if it was trying to be that, funny. What 
I mean, we talked in Tarantula about the treatment of women and how Mary yeah. Corday, this is a different kind, which I'm not really sure if it's well, derogatory it's, to women, but it makes the men look like fools. Yeah, it, again, very much a product of the time period. Doesn't make it right. I mean, yeah, clearly she's being treated as an object. You know, it's like all these these horny guys have been up in, in the North Pole, right? And like, oh my God, a woman, you know, and... and they're all fighting for time and affection, but I mean, okay, from a realistic standpoint, honestly, very realistic. If you know, a bunch of guys, gals, whatever the case may be, if they're isolated and they haven't seen uh, a member of the opposite sex or a member of the sex in which they are attracted to, and they see someone, obviously, then that's going to happen. We see that in a lot of other movies here. It's just taken to the next level and it is almost comical and it is kind of like, okay. And, and, but you know, and she doesn't seem to have a problem with it. She kind of like, I'll dance with you and, and I'll do this. You know, clearly it's like, you should probably be protecting yourself because the, the, <laughs> these guys are, have been isolated for far too long. I don't know. I did like her reaction. She, it's like she's in a way smarter than them. Like she knows their situation. She appreciates it. She doesn't take it derogatory. She understands. I like how she reacted. I just didn't like what she had to react to. I mean, it was, it again, it kind of was what it was. I don't know. It was kind of like, again, I look at it as like you wouldn't, in 2021, you're not going to do that type of, of scene anymore because people's heads would explode, you know, even if it was done in, in a funny way, because it's it's a trigger for, for some people. And I can respect that. You know, 1957, it was acceptable. Doesn't mean it right or wrong. Yeah, it's kind of neither here nor there. It, it was something that you could do in 57 and women were treated differently than than men. So kind of Kind of to be expected, but I, her reaction was she kind of went along with it, but she but she did it in a way that didn't necessarily make her less than they were. I mean, she was kind of like in charge of the whole situation. It's kind of like, yeah, I'll dance with you. I'll entertain you. But you never really got the, I at least I never did see her as a potential victim of the situation. She was very much in control of the situation. And she was just kind of going along because she said, I'm, yeah, I'm smarter. I'm at a different level than you. I'll entertain you, you know, I'll entertain the troops and I'll do it for now. But that's. Steve, I don't remember. Did she ever get reduced to the screaming female? We just saw it and I yeah. can't even remember. She did. She did scream. She had one when, when the, when the uh, mantis was looking in the window, the mantis was, was at the window. She was there talking the whole time and with the Colonel and the doctor. Yeah. And the mantis is there. And the mantis is there. You're like, oh, for the love of God, look out the window, yeah. people. Because they keep yeah. talking about, like, how big – I'm trying to measure how big it is. It's like, well, it's right out your window. Yeah. And they look at her and talk. And I know – and, of course, they don't – I guess the actors weren't told what it was going to be like when they put the special effect in with the mantis being there. But the mantis is there the whole time. It's like, how can they – you know, it's hard to put the perspective, like, where the window is and where they're, where they're exactly, like, was it a quick glance, like just to see her, but didn't look at the window. And she finally looks out the window. She lets out the scream. And then, you know, the mantis tries to break in, um, that kind of stuff. And you can maybe say there was a little bit at the very end with the end scene where the mantis's body does that. Uh, it, it's um, 
leg or arm or whatever does that's reacting and the guy picks her up and holds her yeah and says, oh and like carry the, the, the saver or whatever but i don't think she screamed i think it's just more his reaction you know because she was just there not noticing it because it was coming from behind her but otherwise i think she i look at it early on when he was the doctor was about to travel and she had her stuff all packed and he goes What's, what's all that stuff? That's my stuff. I'm coming too because you need a, I'm your photographer and I called him already and said that your photographer was coming and got permission and all this stuff. So she was, and he was like, okay. I mean, he didn't fight. Say, oh no, you can't do this. There was, there was really none of that. I, I don't remember any of that stuff where it's like, oh, you can't do this. You're, you're the woman or whatever. It's when, when the military guys went into the tunnel, the doctor didn't go and she didn't go. It was the military guys that went in, which was appropriate, which is what it should be. It would be, it would be a little weird if the doctor and her were to go in there and do the next thing where they're throwing the chemical bombs and all the other stuff. But in some films they have or suddenly scientists or whatever being able to do all these manly things. It's like, you know, really that's not in their skill set. It would really be the other people. And you can argue with this film, like he's flying out to investigate all these sites. I was thinking about it when I was, when I was watching it tonight, you know, it was just like, okay, no colonel is ever going to be the one to go fly and investigate this. It's going to be like, okay, send some guys out, tell them to go take a look. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be, it's like, it's like Captain Kirk beaming down from the starship and every planet, you know, it's like, no, it's going to be more like Star Trek, the next generation, because Riker, you go, I'm too important to die, but you're not. <laughs> we're watching, we're rewatching classic track. And, and Carla mentions that almost, she says, why are they sending down the three most important people on the ship to the planet? Well, they've got the red, you know, the red-shirted security guard to protect him. Yeah, he gets killed in the first 10 seconds, but... Congratulations, I, I, Mr. Turek. You win the prize for bringing up the first Star Trek reference in the episode. Oh, and I have a second. Uh, you know, I, I will throw this out real quick. The uncredited in this movie as a photographer is actor Michael Forrest better known as the Greek god Apollo in the classic Star Trek episode, Who Mourns for Adonais? And the Star Trek Continues episode, Pilgrim of Eternity. He's got 258 film credits, lots of TV. Uh, He was in Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Beast from Haunted Cave. Funny, interesting spaghetti Western called Now They Call Him Sacramento. He is still acting at the age of 92. So Michael Forrest is hmm. a photographer, uncredited in this film. Oh, same age as Paul Smith, 92. Alive and well. He's got something, I think, that's in pre- or post-production. Uh, he actually looked really good in, in Star Trek Continues. They bring the character back. It kind of did a really good job making him kind of, as he gains his power back, they did some special effects to make him look a little bit younger and... And it's uh, if you love Star Trek, Star Trek continues highly recommended. And he comes right out in the first episode to kind of add some legitimacy to the show. So this is another universal international movie. And I feel like it's missing the touch of Jack Arnold. It just Nathan Duran was the director and, you know, it's going to be blasphemy. He has directed some other pretty big films, but I just don't think he had the touch of Jack Arnold. And it just needed some tightening up a little you know, reconfiguring. And I think I would have loved this movie. There's a lot of good things about it. Uh, I love the way the Mantis looks, but just overall, like I said, it's a struggle for me to get through it. 
I enjoy it. It's my least favorite of these of these three films, but I I do enjoy it. It does lack a little something again compared to some other giant bug movies. And I think it does better than others. I think it falls kind of right in the middle for me as far as big giant bug movies, not the best, not the worst. It would have been interesting to see if you would have had somebody like maybe a John Agar or somebody, a bigger named actor, maybe. Um, Would have been interesting to see kind of like how, the movie would have fared uh, and, and how maybe how you would have enjoyed it if you would have seen maybe somebody familiar. I mean, you've got Nathan Duran, as you said, I mean, you know, not a lot of credits, but he did some, some other big movies, 20 million miles to earth brain from planet arrows. He did a lot of TV work episodes of lost in space and time tunnel and voyage to the bottom of the sea and land of the giants Story by William Allen, screenplay by Martin Berkeley. William Allen did work on uh, numerous universal horror films, Black Castle, It Came From Outer Space, Creature Walks Among Us, Colossus of New York. That's not a universal film, but you got some good cred there. So he was the producer also and producer of all these movies, like you said. I feel like he sat there and said, okay, we've done a giant spider. We've done this. We've done that okay, let's do a giant praying mantis. And that's his story that he's credited for. And they gave it to the screenwriter. That's also what this movie feels like to me. And there might be some truth to that, actually. I mean, it's probably when you see that, it's like story by sometimes that's all they did, right? They came up with an idea. So sometimes it's like they flesh a lot of it out and the screenplay takes it to the next level. So it's, I don't know how involved he was, but it, you might be right. It might be picking random bugs. Let's do the mantis next, you know, and, and, and that's kind of cool. It's got the claws and stuff like that. I don't know. I, yeah, I think we enjoyed it more than you, but that's good. We can have, we can have our, you know, Mr. Turk at one point accused you and I of, of never having a difference of opinion. And I think we have proven that sometimes we do, We sync up a lot of times. Other times we're on different pages. So I think this is one where I I enjoy the film more than you. And that's okay. And I I will say, I know one of the things that um, we can all agree on, the the beginning starts off with a very educational type atmosphere. And that was all the director's choice from what I've read. It was his decision to do that type of beginning, you know, and um, to really go into the showing map. I mean, it's not the exact exciting way to open up the movie, just showing a map of the world and then zooming in and then showing a volcanic explosion, then zooming out and zo- going into the map and zooming in, you know, very slowly to the um, Arctic circle and then showing the, um, the ice flow collapse and then going into about the different things with the radars and stuff like that. That was his choice. He decided, I mean, he wanted to do it in th- that way. So it was a directal. It wasn't like um, the producer told him to do it or the story. Was, he decided that's the way he wanted to visualize it out to the people. And again, it's 1957. So we know we have to give him some break a little bit on what kind of effects they can do. But it could have been edited and done differently and, and maybe more effectively in that part to keep it more engaging in the beginnings. I think, you know, if you have an audience out there in 1957, and here we're watching 58, but I mean, in the movie theaters, going there and watching it in the thing, 
it was a double bill and, it, and I'm not sure if it was the first film or the second film, but if it was the second film of the double bill, I could see where people would be like, after that first little bit, be like, Hey, you know, let's just go home. <laughs> you know, it's, it, but they haven't gotten anything yet. But if it was the first film, then people are going to sit through it because they want to see, you know, what the second film is like. So I can see that being problematic where when, when I'm watching it as a child at home, you know, you can just easily just entertain yourself until the monster shows up and then you're right into the movie. And I think that's, you know, again, that, that differential part to it. And it probably was, they said, let's do daily maintenance. And they spent the money on the monster. I mean, it, so the, the money is there. The effects are good, as we talked about earlier. And I think the reason it might not look as realistic as a praying mantis is because it's been for thousands and thousands of years stuck in ice. So it's going to have some kind of effect on its out on its appearance. So that's that's the way I, I put it off. You know, it's like okay, it might not look exactly like a normal praying mantis, but then again, it's also thousands of years old. It's been stuck in the ice for a while. I mean, you know, you're not going to look exactly the same. So how how do you like it, Steve? What's your emotional thoughts about it? I've always enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's, it's to me, I would give it like a. a if I was doing it on a 10 scale, I would say six out of 10. When I was a child, I probably would have given it an eight out of 10, you know, cause it was just, it's, it's, it's an enjoyable thing. So yes, there are some stretches where it gets kind of dry, but, but if you're watching it on the DVD, that's when you know to go get your snack, you know, um, you don't have to hit the pause button. You can hear the dialogue going on. I've always enjoyed um, William Hopper and Craig Stevens, you know, and stuff like that. I've enjoyed all three of the main leads. Uh, the humor is, 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 is dated, but I mean, you know, it, but, but you look at a lot of comedies, a lot of comedies, the humor does date, especially if they re- reference topical things at that time, which decades later, nobody's going to know what they're referencing, you know, and then you're going to be like, well, what, what are they referencing? And you got to look it up, which is never good for a comedy when you got to look up the joke to get the joke. <laughs> But I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's, um, I think it holds up well. The special effects, because they're practical, hold up very well. The shooting, the film, you know, the filming of it that they did, I think does well. I mean, that's the only thing I was thinking of when I was watching it tonight with you guys in a different car, of course. You know, mine was this nice ah, Ford Fairmount, yellow, ah, great. Not 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 these fancy seats, you guys. I don't know where those seats came from in 1958. You, you guys have a special car. Well, we came no, we came from 2021 and traveled back. Remember? This is our, our time travel machine. Yes. I came back from a doctor who put me in a booth. We went back, and he's he's doing an adventure, and I went over here to watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so he better be there to get my ride back, otherwise I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I got you a Doctor Who reference. Very good. Very. I was like, I did. I don't have a Doctor Who reference. I I got my Star Trek in. I'm I'm good. Later on, he's going to take me to the set to meet Jonathan Fred. So I mean, I'm going to have I'm going to be the geeking out all over the place. I had, I had to throw it in there for Jeff. Well, Steve, I'm glad I ran into you. Thanks for spending time with us talking about this. I've never watch. seen this next movie. Uh, this is my first time watching. Oh, so great! Well, you have to. Monster. Maybe you can leave us feedback. And let us know what you thought, and we'll play that in the next episode. Yeah. If you want to see The Deadly Mantis in 2021, it is available on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. You can get it new for $20. It's also available 
on the out of print classic sci-fi ultimate collection volume two you can get it for about $25 and you can get it along with Dr. Cyclops, Cult of the Cobra, The Land Unknown, and The Leech Woman. Unfortunately, it is not available on Amazon Prime. You're going to have to uh, seek out the Blu-ray or the out-of-print DVD. I'd go for the out-of-print DVD because you get uh, four other movies for almost the same price. I think that's the way to go. That's just That's just me, though. That's how you can see... The Deadly Mantis in 2021. And that second time I watched it, I had recorded Spinguli when it was on. That's an option. Okay, I got I got the classic sci-fi volumes one and two. I got them both for when they were years back when they were like ten dollars each. So it was a bargain of a bargain. And if you want to compare special effects, compare the Deadly Mantis to the Land Unknown. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thank you very much. Everybody, listen to the Diecast Movie Podcast. Gosh, enjoy the next movie. Take care. Tell Ben hello. Oh, I will. And thank you, guys. I mean, I've been always loving your podcast. I mean, it's a club. Welcome to the club. I mean, it's one of those things that's nice where, you know, members of the club get to come on to the episodes of the club and do them. It's just got to reach out to Rich and Jeff. And one day your dreams, too, can come true. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I think we can top that. Thank you, Steve so much for we'll joining talk soon back when we're in 2021 yes i gotta get back to the doctor i'm not sure I'm, 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 i see him signaling me i better get to him he's got some jelly babies so i'm going <laughs> <laughs> all right see you later take care ladies and gentlemen our next attraction a popcorn is nutritious, you will find it mm, delicious. Most anything that you would care to eat. Cooling drinks that are so grand, simply name your favorite friend. Or some ice cream so good and helpful too. If you feel you need nutrition, now's the time, it's intermission. Step right up, we have the very best for you. Isolated Pacific Island, the Navy lands a party of daring scientists to solve the mysterious disappearance of an entire atomic research team. Strange horror strikes first at the plane that brought them. And then, earth-shattering tremors begin tearing the island to shreds. Okay, Professor, how are the crabs blowing up the island? I am not sure, but imagine they are able to send out arcs of heat. They are packed with it. They can melt and fuse parts of the caverns. Explode the materials contained and bring about the slides. There used to be ridges there for maybe two miles. Nowadays, less than half a city block. Soon we will have nowhere to run. Fathoms deep among the terrors of the mighty Pacific, daring skin divers brave undersea perils that stagger the imagination. Here are monsters with razor-sharp claws that hand grenades and dynamite cannot stop. Our 
searing fire and flame, nor tons of crushing rocks, as mankind faces its last desperate chance. Attack of the Crab Monsters, one of the best titles for a monster <laughs> movie of the 1950s. And I kind of think that it almost doesn't do it justice because it immediately you think of this uh, as kind of this cheesy title. I think there's a lot more to this movie than, than meets the eye because it's not just dealing with giant crabs. There's some interesting aspects to this film that you wouldn't expect to find in, in a movie called Attack of the Crab Monsters. I, I love this movie. This is a movie I, I first discovered, again, probably about 15 years ago. No more than that. And maybe not even that. Maybe maybe closer to 10. And I've seen a few times over the years and, and is one that I always have a lot of fun with this one. As cheesy as the crab monsters may be, this is a fun flick. Something that I always, you know, see something different every time I watch the movie. What about you? This was a recent first time watch, not for this, but within the last year, I watched it for the first time when I got the Blu-ray and I've written about it on the blog, but I watched it again and yeah, it's rewatchable also. It's definitely a different level than either of the other two movies. You know, it's one of Roger Corman's quick cheapies, but it is, it's entertaining and it, it doesn't have the characters or the development that even the other two have, but there's just a hint. You have, it's more subtle. I mean, I think it's there, but they just don't waste any time on that. I mean, this is barely over an hour, so they speed along with more of the story. If you look hard enough and pay attention, I think there's some stuff there. There's some different layers to this film, and you wouldn't expect to find that. In a Roger Corman production, nothing against Roger Corman. He puts out some great films. Sometimes, you know, all you want is just an hour of fluff to just, you know, you don't want to have to, to think too hard. You just you just want to be entertained for, for an hour. And, and Roger Corman can be really good at that. This one entertains you, but also throws a few interesting twists along the way, with especially as we start getting into the whole idea of like you know the intelligence being kind of absorbed by the crabs which yeah absolutely no sign involved in this but kind of fun kind of different yeah they're not just giant crabs they're giant telepathic crabs yeah, exactly and, and it's, even though the telepathy kind of fluctuates during the course of the movie because it's sometimes it's like they're telepathic as long as there's like some type of metallic device close by. But then other times they seem to be telepathic and there's no metal device nearby. Just throw that out the window and just say, okay. It's complicated. I mean, the science in this is the worst science of the three, but I don't understand. So this is an effect of radiation. Uh, nuclear testing was done on this island. The island is shrinking. Now, I'm not sure what that has to do with anything other than causing the earthquakes and things that unearth the giant crabs but that's kind of unusual to add that the shrinking island to it there's a lot of talk about atoms and electrons and that's why you can't shoot them because bullets and grenades don't bounce off them they pass through them so that's kind of odd the island shrinking is just there 
to create a deadline, right? Oh, okay. Urgency, really. I mean, because otherwise, what's the, yeah, there's no science behind it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it does kind of give them this ticking time bomb, so to speak, is like, yeah, you've, you've got your little slab of land and it's shrinking, you know, so you've got to figure this out. And that's the only reason I could come up with is why they threw that in here. Yeah, and the, the bodies of the dead men are assimilated and the brain tissue. I don't know. And there's a quote <laughs> I really did like, doctor, you're not going to suggest we study it instead. No, I'm not a mad scientist. <laughs> silly. It, this, is, this is silly, but it is fun. Yeah, I think that, you know, as, as we've worked our way through these movies, I mean, Tarantula, I think, is is the best of the three. It's not A-level, but it's clearly a notch or two above the rest. Deadly Mantis, a lot of fun. Some comparisons to, to them. This one, you know, is, is clearly a notch below, but still well-made, you know. And, and Roger Corman's got he's got different levels to his films. I mean, some of his movies, I mean, none of them have big budgets, but you know, some of the movies have a really cheap look to them. Other times Roger Corman uses his, his dollar 50 budget a little more wisely. And this one, you know, you, you've got the use of low of the, uh, the location shots. Uh, I think enhanced this, this movie. Now I will what is this house doing on this random atoll out in the middle of the ocean? To me, the, the house doesn't seem like a house that would be built. It's not like a beach house or a hut or a scientific. I don't know. It's well, just- it, it is, though. I mean, you mentioned in Tarantula that, you know, a doctor's office might be in a house or whatever. This is a lab. I mean, they're going to investigate the disappearance of a previous team, right? This is their lab, and it, but it is funny because like one room is the lab, and it's kind of mixed with the where they prepare their food. But then there's like a bedroom. I mean, it is a house, but I, I definitely got the that's their lab. That to me, that's I didn't question that. I, I get. I don't know. To me, it just there were elements of like this looked like a house in the suburbs, kind of kind of yeah. suburbs. not. I, I don't know. I think of like some other lab setups that we've seen in, in some other films. Like, for example, the Inner Sanctum movie with, with Lon Chaney, the one where he goes to the jungles and stuff. Remember, there's the big room, the lads have, and then like the bedroom is just like cots or whatever in the background or, you know, or whatever. It was just, yeah. it was not like a regular, here is the queen size bed and here is the paintings on the wall. And I'm like, would scientists really pack decorative you know, lamps and, and paintings and, and stuff. I don't know. I, not a deterrent in any way, shape or form. It just kind of struck me as, as like, this seems like a really fancy house to build. I don't know. It's just, yeah, I can just imagine like the, you know, they're sending this ship and like they're building this, this big house. Like to me, if it's a scientific hut, seems to me like it would have been different, but I don't know. I can get that. One thing I really liked, about this was as gory as it was. And I'm not talking like consistently blood and guts, but there are a couple really chilling scenes from the get-go when they're arriving on the raft and one of the guys falls off the raft. And so he's underwater and this giant eyeball opens and then something grabs him and pulls him down and he's screaming underwater and bubbles are coming out of his mouth. The others reach in and when they pull him up, 
he's missing his head. <laughs> I thought that I didn't expect that in a this 1957 cheapy movie. I really like that. And then later, Jules, whoever that was, I didn't write down the actor. You know, he gets his hand cut off when he falls into the pit. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. There's some gory scenes. This would have been color might not have made past the censors at the time, but because it's black and white, you can kind of cover up a little bit of exactly how graphic it was. But yeah, late 50s, early 60s, you were starting to see a few things like this kind of sneak past the censors that might not have flown just a few years early. So when you see it in these old movies, you're like, whoa, didn't, that caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting to, to see random heads and aren't disembodied arms and, and stuff floating around, which I don't know, in a weird kind of way. I mean, it does kind of elevate the movie. For yeah. Me. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're, we're, we're not just dealing with off screen screams or whatever. It's like, we're, we're dealing with a severed limb here. We're wrapping up the, the limb and, and to me that, that elevates it. And then somebody comments after that scene I described, I hope that man's death is not an omen of things to come. Well, of course it is. I don't know. If I'm on an island and somebody loses their head, <laughs> I've seen enough movies to know that things are I don't are care not, if it's an omen or not. No, things are not going to end well. Let's talk about the crabs. <laughs> I don't think they're bad looking. Sure, when they're like scuttling across the, the floor of the cave, you know, their appendages aren't really moving. They're just obviously being dragged. But that's okay. Their eyes, I, I love it when they open their eyelid. I mean, it's just like a trash bag with a string on it that they are pulling up, you know, yeah. but it, it works somehow. It does. Um, yeah. It's charming. The, the, yeah, there's some, the illusion that they are really mobile somehow works. I, I don't know how. In a limited way, it, 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 it does. Paul Blaisdell was supposed to do the special effects of this movie. He turned it down because he needed more money. He said he couldn't do what they needed on the on the budget. And the budget was $70,000, which actually seems like a lot for a Roger Corman movie. I think that what they did, though, with the limited resources, it, it works. Now, I know that I, I read, we'll just mention it now here, there's a lot of interesting tidbits in a book called Keep Watching the Skies, American Science Fiction Movies of the 50s by Bill Warren. It was originally a two-volume set. It's now all in one. I've used this book before in the show. I will mention it again. Highly worth tracking down. And it's got so much good information in there that it enhances your, your enjoyment of these movies. So one of the things that's talked about in the book is the uh, a lot of things you know about the movie as far as like that don't make sense. But one of the things they talked about was the, the crabs themselves. And so the script was written, written by Charles uh, Griffith. And he wrote it very quickly, and he didn't have the time to revise elements of the script. The crabs were not as he envisioned them. Essentially, he envisioned them being much more like a traditional-looking crab. Well, then, you know, the finished product shows up on set, and you've got eyes and, you know, basically this, this pseudo-human face on the crab, which was not what he envisioned. They didn't have time to redo it. He apparently wasn't pleased with the end result because it wasn't how he thought out, but it, it was what it was. And he didn't have time to revise the script. 
He, of course, Charles Griffith, you know, is a name that I think we've mentioned on the show before. If not, it conquered the world, not of this earth, the undead, bucket of blood, beast from haunted cave, little shop of horrors, creature from the haunted sea, Barbarella, death race, 2000, she beast. Well, he knows what he's doing when he's writing these, these, these movies. And this was a Roger Corman production. So you're going into it even by this point, 57, I think people knew, okay, we're not dealing with, with a big budget. We're going to have to do with what we can. And I think what they came up with for the crabs. Yeah. Comical in a way, I suppose, if you look at it, I think it, it works. And I think, I think they're cool. It adds a measure of charm to this film. If they were better, sure. Might elevate the movie might not be, a B-list movie, this is probably a B-minus, I guess, by most people's lists, might elevate it a little bit. It might lose some charm along the way. When you see these these faces, I don't know, it makes me, it makes me smile. I didn't have a problem with it at all. This is interesting, I, I think. I'm also using a book. It's called The Great Book of Movie Monsters by Jan Stacy and Ryder Syverson. And this is like an encyclopedia of the monsters. So... There is a chapter on crab monsters. And as I read these things, think about what we saw and let your imagination run wild and see if you think that they were accurately depicted. They describe the crabs, giant crabs with pinchers as big as couches, huge gnashing teeth and immense eyes. Size and weight, 25 feet wide, about eight feet high, weight about a ton and a half. Superpowers, they are incredibly strong. They're telepathic. They're immune to many weapons. They're quite intelligent for crabs. Presumably, their brains are larger than normal as well. They lure scientists into traps as they can talk. The sounds and language, they have clicking sounds when they walk. They also can talk with the voice of anyone they eat. Uh, Even just reading that makes me laugh. (laughs) They are invulnerable to guns and fire but they are vulnerable to number two behind dynamite, electricity. Now, you take all that information, everything we know, they tell you what to do if you meet these giant crabs. You throw some bait and run. You don't (laughs) listen to voices that sound like your old Aunt Mabel and tell you to meet them in a nearby cave. The crabs are excellent Uh, that's fun that this book is really great you take any monster in from any movie almost and you get a chapter like that with the, the you know their stats so i recommend that that book that but that uh, i thought was particularly fun for the crab monsters <laughs> yeah that's perfect yeah that goes with the fun of the film yeah i just want to touch again on your comment about the writer charles griffith and all those corman movies he did they're is a a batch of them you mentioned most of them except the last woman on earth that were all made very closely within a couple years of each other they're all just better than you think they would be you know they're not good they're silly but they're fun i I don't know how to describe it. it i feel like i'm trying to sell it i probably don't need to sell it to our audience but anyone basically that thinks oh that's garbage i i would argue so I think movies from the 50s or 60s from this time period can be a bad movie, but they still have charm and enough to sell it so that you can enjoy it. I would rather watch 
a bad movie from the late 50s, early 60s time period than a bad movie from, say, the you know 70s or 80s. When you see a lot of these public domain sets, there's some bad movies in, in the bunch, obviously, but I can much more easily enjoy a movie from this time period than something from the 70s. A low-budget bad movie that tends to sometimes just be boring, I guess. is you know, I mean, sometimes you can watch a bad movie, low-budget, and it's just, there's not much going on. I'm trying to think of a movie. I've seen some stuff in the, in the 70s or, or 80s time frame that at the end of the movie, you're like, I didn't hate it, but nothing really happened in it. And, and there's not charm, maybe some people I recognize, maybe not. It's that, that charm is missing, the fun factor. You just get this kind of like run-of-the-mill, boring film. I don't know. These are not boring from this time period. I mean, that to me, they're entertaining. Sometimes it's the cast. Sometimes it's just the time period was a little more simpler. And then you see these just nonsensical plots that can just entertain you. And then sometimes maybe they're not as action-packed, but there's enough other aspects of the film that can make it enjoyable as opposed to something from maybe, again, the 70s or, or, or 80s, just picking on those decades. Some of the, the low-budget public domain films that came out from that time period sometimes can be a bit of a, a slog to make it through. Uh, I never feel that way with movies from, from the you know 50s or 60s. Hmm. So speaking of the cast, this is not, I don't believe, a very recognizable cast. What do you have on these folks? Let's see. Richard Garland plays Dale Brewer. Uh, he is in lots of TVs and Westerns. He was in Panic in Year Zero in 1962, Mutiny in Outer Space in 65. But he died 1969 at the age of 41 of alcoholism. Not a very prolific career. Pamela Duncan plays the uh, femme fatale, Martha Hunter, not a lot of stuff, lots of TV stuff. She was in an episode of Thriller. She was in the movie The Undead. You've got Leslie Bradley as Dr. Carl Weigand, teenage caveman who's in the Twilight Zone. Died at a young age, too, 1974 at the age of 66. You've got uh, Richard Cutting as Dr. James Carson, Monolith Monsters, Monster on Campus, lots of TV work. He, too, died at a young age, 1972, at the age of 59, of kidney disease. And you got a couple of other people, probably the most famous people, I think. Mel Wells as Jules Devereaux. He was in Abbott Costello, Meet the Mummy, but he was Mr. Mushnick in The Little Shop of Horrors. He was also in She-Beast. He did voice dubbing for lots of films, including Lady Frankenstein. He was in a TV series that I've never seen, but I've heard of called Spectre Man from the 1970s. He was also in some films in the 80s, Wolfen and Chopping Mall. Also, of course, probably the most famous person in this movie is Russell Johnson, who plays Hank Chapman. Of course, best known as the professor from Gilligan's Island. I have no shame in mentioning that last weekend while we were doing the deck and I was inside cooling off. I turned to me TV and it was Gilligan's Island was on. I hadn't watched Gilligan's Island in a long time. And it was ones with natives and headhunters from another Island, which 
You know what? I, I don't even ask me where I came up with this name, but for some reason, I think the the sounds that they would make. When I was a little kid, I called them bula bulas. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Peel back the curtain for that. He was in a lot. He's in a lot of movies in this time period. It came from outer space. This island, Earth. The Space Children. He was in episodes of Thriller, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, The Invaders. He had a long, lengthy career. Uh, he was on board for all of the all of the Gilligan's Island spinoffs and remakes, both animated shows that were in the 70s. He was in all three of the movies. So very well-known actor. Died in 2014 at the age of 89. Russell Johnson is, is who you might recognize the most. Got to give up for a couple of other people here. So Beach Dickerson worked on special effects as the Crab Claw Operator. Ed Nelson was the main part of the monster, and he played a character called Lieutenant Quinlan in the movie. Beach Dickerson was Seaman Ron Fellows. He was in some other movies, War of the Satellites, Teenage Caveman again, Creature from the Haunted Sea. He's also in the Dunwich Horror. A few familiar faces that people might be aware of. Going back to the character of Hank Chapman, this is something interesting in the book that Jim uh, Warren wrote about. He compared Hank's death in the movie to that of James Whitmore's death in Them. The thought that James Whitmore was a lead character, much like Hank Chapman was a lead character, and all of a sudden the shocking twist is that they're they're, they're killed off. Um, something that you wouldn't expect for what, would be a main character in a movie. Sometimes you expect the people you earmark, they're going to make it to the end of the movie. You know, this guy here, yeah, doesn't stand a chance. I can see that. I mean, I remember the first time I watched them and and James Whitmore's death and that kind of shocked me. I thought for sure he was going to make it to the end of the movie, you know, and then he doesn't. It's like, whoa, okay, that that kind of throws me. One of the interesting things that that Jim uh, Warren wrote about uh, in the movie. He also talked about some of the the things that didn't quite make sense or some plot holes. There was the sequence with uh, two pilots was uh, actually cut from the final film, but we do see the plane explode. And it's implied that the crabs had something to do with the destruction of the plane, which doesn't really make much sense based on the powers that we know that they have. That seems to be outside the realm of their abilities, but yet it's implied that they did have something to do with it. There are references to worms that are never really mentioned again. You kind of think like they would, the the giant worms or something would come into play later on in the movie. So I mentioned earlier then about the crabs, you know, sometimes they're communicating through metal, but sometimes they seem to call the people through the night and there's no metal involved. That doesn't, you know, really go from uh, scene to scene. But despite these plot holes, there's a lot of use of sounds, and and there's a general tension on the island, kind of a creepy feel. I mean, that feeling of you're isolated, you're on an island, the island is shrinking, so it goes back to that ticking time bomb. The sounds that they start to hear the crabs, but they don't see the crabs, just kind of, you know, you're just imagine you're in this island jungle setting sort of, and all of a sudden you're hearing noises, but you don't know where the noises are coming from. Just adds to the overall tension of the film. And that's, again, what again elevates this movie a little bit from being just a run of the mill 
and, you know, slap it together in a week kind of film. And I think that's, you know, Roger Corman took what he had to work with and I think really elevated this movie into something that you wouldn't uh, normally expect from this type of film. Well, I don't have anything else. I feel like I was particularly hard on the Deadly Mantis, but enjoyment-wise, I'd watch this 10 times before I'd watch Deadly Mantis again. Surprisingly, not as easy to find this movie, and that always kind of adds something to me. The harder a movie is to find, the more I want to see it. And sometimes the end result may be not quite what I had hoped, but I always look at it a little bit better. It's like, well, you know what? I went through a lot to get this film. So I'm going to, to like it maybe a little more simply because I had a, a harder journey to get to it. Yeah. You can find prints of this movie out there that are the bootleg copies. That was the only way to get this movie for a long time. And my DVD actually is a bootleg and it's not bad. It's VHS quality. This movie is on Amazon Prime as part of your membership. It's not as good as the Blu-ray, but it's not a bad print. And so that's probably the best and cheapest way for you to go. The Blu-ray, unfortunately, is out of print. It was one of those limited edition releases from Shout Factory, and I didn't jump on it when I should have. And now it is selling for anywhere from $65 to $100 on eBay, which is insane. I'll I'll sell you my copy for $100. You know what? Uh, I'm good with my bootleg. Anybody paying $100 for a 65-minute movie, really, people, come on. Think about it. This was also available. This is a little bit cheaper. It's available on the out-of-print DVD, Roger Corman's Cult Classics Triple Feature with War of the Satellites and Not of This Earth. I have Not of This Earth. It's a fun film. War of the Satellites, I don't know that I've ever seen that one. It runs for about $35 used. Some people are selling it for as much as $80, which is insane. Why would you spend, again, $80 for that, that seems really, really pricey. 35 is not a bad price for three movies on DVD. So if you can find that, that might be the, the cheapest way to get it added to your physical media collection, unless you stumble upon somebody who doesn't realize what they've got with the Blu-ray. Most people probably do, unfortunately, unless Shout Factory comes out, but they normally don't. When they do those limited editions, they're, they're there, they're gone, and now... People are paying top dollar for it. Don't do that. Go to Amazon Prime. It's a good copy of the film. Probably better than what you can find on on YouTube, I think, from what I was doing, some compare and contrast. Nonetheless, well worth checking out if you haven't. I think it's time to go. I think we we could stay and see two more movies, right? But I'm Yeah, there's a couple more movies. Black Scorpion, which I have not seen for a long time. I'd love to see that. Beast with a Million Eyes. I've seen it. I can't even really remember anything about it. But you know what? It's late. And it is time for us to fire up the Wayback Machine and, and head back home because we've got some other business to attend to. Yes, we do. This was a lot of fun. I hope they have a trash can by the exit. I need to throw all these candy wrappers and cups and things into the trash. I look forward to coming back to not this drive-in, but another drive-in in a month. And we will talk about that later on in the show. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. 
Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Well, that sure was a lot of fun. Those were three fun movies. Amazing that we ran into Steve. What are the chances? What What are the chances of traveling back to 1958 and running into to a good friend like that? It It, it almost makes you wonder if that's going to be a theme for the summer. I don't know. Ooh, I don't know. Will lightning strike twice? And maybe three times. Mm. You'll have to tune in. You, the listener, will have to tune in. You never know who's going to visit the clubhouse. Yeah. Well, you know what we haven't done because we've gone kind of out of order in this episode? We've, we've got some old business to take care of. First of all, I am amazed and thrilled to share that since we last produced a show. We have 12 new members in the Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast, which is just fabulous. I mean, we've got so many people that we're going to take turns reading them off so that people don't get bored with a single voice. I'll start out and I will give a hearty welcome to Roger Froyland Jr., Ralph Coons, Eric Miles, Jenna Murphy, Tennessee Macabre, Danny Ulrich. Lucy the Village, added by your very own Carla. I'll stop real quick and give a shout out to Lucy because I know she's going to be listening and talking with Carla. They play online games and Carla recommended the podcast because they were talking movies. And so she has started listening to the show. So hello, Lucy. Thank you for joining the club. Hey, Lucy. After this, we're going to tell how to give feedback. So give us a shout and uh, tell us how you like it. Absolutely. Okay, so next up on the list, Sean Van Diver. Derek Thompson. Robert Klee, or Cly, K-L-I-E. Let us know how you pronounce it. Scott Allen Breitmeier. And Andrea Braid, literally coming in at the 11th hour, right before we fired up the time machine. I was waiting for you to get situated when I responded and welcomed her on the actual Facebook group page. So it is just amazing to have you all. Thank you for for doing that. And I hope you'll get involved in the conversation. It's always fun to, to get more people in the clubhouse, whether you call in and leave voicemails or go on Facebook or travel back in time to follow us wherever we go. As creepy as that may be. Follow us, and and we will love to have you talk about uh, whatever movies we're talking about that week. Yeah, so the Facebook group page, uh, comment there, give us some feedback, give us some suggestions for shows. We have a email address, classichorrors.club at gmail.com, and we have a hotline, a phone number you can call and leave a voicemail if you want, and that is 616-649-2582. 616-649-CLUB. Lucy, sorry that you had to experience that. (laughs) Okay, Uh, we have feedback this week. How about that? Uh, Our good friend, Bill Mize, he actually recorded a message and emailed it to us. So he sort of combined all of the methods into one. I'm going to play that now. Hello, my Jeff. Hello, my Rich. It's Bill Mize over here at the Bill Watches Movies and the Bill Watches Serials podcast. Even though we interact a great deal on the Book of Face, I just realized that it's been a while since I've sent you a love letter regarding your show, and I am now phoning it in to correct that egregious error. First, 
I want you to know that I am a sucker for what I'm calling your biography shows. George Zuko, Barbara Steele, Lionel Atwill, and Faye Ray. I love those shows. And with this one, I love the movies that you chose, or rather had recommended to you, especially the Lucille Ball Boris Karloff horror-adjacent Lourdes. They were a treat, and it was great to hear what you had to say about all of them. And thank you to the listener who wrote in and recommended Lourdes. Well done. Also, as an aside, you will never go wrong with a Gregory Mank or Tom Weaver book, that's for sure. Next. I know that it's not officially part of the Classic Horrors Club universe, but I also have to say that I am loving Jeff's Gamera blog posts, as I have a very strong love for certain kaiju and kaiju eras, and it's fun to see his thoughts on everyone's favorite flying turtle. Just as Derek over at Monster Kid Radio has Luca DeMeo, you guys might want to think about Gamera. I'm just throwing it out there. Finally, I want to encourage listeners to check out your YouTube channel. I am a subscriber, and it's fun to just listen to the concentrated version of your podcast while seeing your bright and shining faces on my screen. It's a great idea and a great move for your show, and I hope it helps you gain new listeners because you too deserve all the success you achieve because of everything that you do for the rest of us monster kids out here. I wish you both the best, and again, thank you for everything. I'll see you and listen to you again soon. Hashtag Monster Bash 2022. Take care. Bye. Bill, thank you again. Man, you you said all the right things that really make me happy about why we do what we're doing. And you're getting out of it things that I hope people would get out of it. Thank you very much. And I always will tell you, because you are very appreciative of what little support we give you, it is very easy to support someone that is putting out a product as high quality as your podcasts are. We appreciate your friendship. We appreciate the work you do and you taking the time to call in. It really means a lot. You're doing some amazing work over there. You're doing something very unique. Uh, which kind of goes in sync with with our conversation with uh, with Steve, is that I think that's what makes the podcast community awesome. Is that it, it? You know, everyone kind of has their little piece of the pie, right? And you do something a little different than somebody else, and we can all talk about the same movies. We all give our own unique perspective, and I think just uh, the mutual support uh, within the podcast community is is awesome. So you know. You're putting out fantastic podcast. You've got a great online presence. Steve is doing amazing work. We always give a shout out to to Derek, very consistently putting out Monster Kid Radio. Different wheelhouse, but just as consistent. My friend Desmond Reddick over at Dread Media. I woefully have not done anything recently for that show, but I continue to support it. 
If you're up for modern, more modern horror movies, uh, that's definitely where you want to tune in. It's top-notch production. And uh, I know, you know, our friend Christopher over at the Time Shifters podcast, probably missing a few out there, but we've got a lot of uh, friends in the community that are all doing their own unique spin on, on whether they're putting out a blog or show. So just mutual love fest. Bill, thank you so much for, for your support. I hope that we give you the same back. I don't know if he has, does he have feedback? I'd like to leave him some feedback. Bill also called out our our YouTube channel, and I don't think we've mentioned that this episode. We have a companion show to the, the podcast that is a, a video portion, and especially this month, I really hope you'll check it out. There's some fun stuff in it. Just imagine all that you're hearing about the experience of going to the drive-in and being able to see that. I mean, we've got some top-notch effects and, and things going on there. So a lot, I think it's a lot of fun. It's it's shorter. We call it highlights and outtakes. So there'll be stuff you don't hear, hear, hear. You don't hear, hear. <laughs> so uh, we invite you to join us there as well. Yeah, they're true companions. We, we hope that people will, will watch and listen because you're going to get stuff on the podcast that you won't get on the video and vice versa. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what Jeff has got cooked up. It'll be uh, our, our drive-in summer, summer at the drive-in. Look for all of the, the wonderful continuity that you will find over the course of the summer. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think that, that'll be the fun thing is that there's going to be all sorts of little fun things along the way. Well, let's transition quickly into new business. Any other old business? No, I think we're good. All right. Well, so new business, we've got some home video releases, not too much in, uh, and we're going mid-June to mid-July because of the way our schedule has shifted. June 22nd from Kino Lorber, we have a movie called The Strangeness from 1981. Uh, It sounds interesting. A group of explorers surveying an abandoned gold mine are trapped in a cave-in and find themselves at the mercy of a slimy, mysterious creature. June 29th, not horror, but uh, adjacent for several different reasons. Battle Beyond the Stars from 1980 from Shout Factory. June 29th, Delirium from 1987. It's a Bava film, not Mario, but Lamberto Bava. That's coming from Kino Lorber. As well, the same day, a 1977 television movie called Night Terror, also known as Night Drive with Miss Valerie Harper. And then July 13th is a 1947 film called The Web, starring Vincent Price. That's more film noir mystery, but fantastic. Another Vincent Price movie coming on Blu-ray. That's coming from which company? Kino Lorber. Kino Lorber, yeah. We've got some birthdays that are relevant. I'm going to stop you for a second. I get there's a couple things we should... I always miss things in here. Well, I'm thinking uh, if we're talking... June, July, isn't the the Christopher Lee box set is officially available for purchase for anyone who didn't do the pre-purchase. I think it is officially available June 22nd, I think. Mm-hmm. I think there was a delay. Uh, it was supposed to come out wide release, and then they delayed it a month. So I know that you and I have our pre-order copies, and it is an amazing box set. I haven't even dived into it yet, but it's just an incredible packaging on it. 
but I think the wide release is, is June 22nd. Okay. Um, Thank and you. then I don't know on the wide release. I don't think the wide release, but I, I, maybe we should mention it. The Frenchman's Garden, Paul Nashi, latest from Mondo Macabro. I don't think by the time this goes live, they'll probably have any more of the limited edition left. They're, they seem to be at the tail end as we record this, but you never know. It's a more obscure title and it's not pure horror, but it's Nashy. I think they're shipping out the limited editions late June, early July. So I don't know as, how soon the regular edition is going to be available, but in the event that you hear this, go to their big cartel website, go to Mondo Macabro on Facebook. That'll they'll follow. And there might be still some limited editions available. It seems like they did the big sale and then they're down to a handful. They didn't sell out right away. Again, it's a more obscure title. Thank you for adding those. I need to start asking you because I think I've mentioned I'm having a hard time finding what's coming out. Birthdays in the months of June and July that are related to our now rich catalog of episodes. June 29th, 1920, Ray Harryhausen. Episode 13, we visited the Harryhausen exhibit in Oklahoma City and, and did a full episode about him. July 10th, 1903, author John Wyndham, who wrote Day of the Triffids. Episode 2, Rich, do you remember we did Day of the Triffids? Well, that was probably our most unique episode just from a timeline perspective because we do the 62 version. We do the 81 miniseries, and then we do like the 2009-ish, I think. So that was, we went pretty far ahead in the, outside of our normal wheelhouse. 81 is on the edge of our wheelhouse, probably should be in our wheelhouse now. 80s has been a long time ago. 2009, that's definitely more temporary, but we did kind of a, that was a unique episode, so. Yeah, I think I even read the book. You did. You read the book, and and uh, I have since purchased the book. Hmm. I, I found it for uh, I purchased it for, I think for a dollar at the library book sale a couple of years ago. Nice. And July fifteenth, nineteen forty one, Larry Cohen. Our episode twenty four was a creepy Cohen Christmas. Anniversaries of movies released. There are a number, so I am just going to randomly pick three. Well, since we're talking about giant bugs. On episode seven, we did Giant Insect Monster Bash, where we talked about beginning of the end. That came out June 28, 1957. Going way back again, episode three, How to Make a Teenage Monster. We talked about How to Make a Monster, which was released July 1st, 1958. And uh, let's go back to this favorite, episode six, Oh Rats. We (laughs) talked about Willard and... Ben. Ben was released June 23rd, 1972. You know that that almost put my future marriage in jeopardy because it was one of the first movies that Carla and I watched together. We joked about this just about a month ago, actually. I said, did that, you know, make you begin to question the whole relationship? And she said, almost. I was really (laughs) beginning to wonder. Yeah, I will forever remember early on in the relationship and singing that song in uh, Ben. Yeah, Ben's the second one, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, that's all I've got. <laughs> that's- uh, 
Well, Rich, tell us what's up with you this summer. What projects are you working on? Well, you know, I haven't done a lot of monster horror-related stuff much. Well, why not? Well, you know, George Zuko month in May kept me busy, which was a lot of fun, and doing some uh, George Zuko OTR Wednesdays. Uh, you know, the last few weeks, it seems like um, it's been kind of crazy work and, and had some time off and finally got the deck done. I think as the summer goes on here, I've got some ideas that I've had percolating for a while that will uh, resurface. So there'll be some monster goodness coming up this summer. But meanwhile, our third annual comedy summer, for lack of a better better name, Carla and I have started watching the uh, films of Harold Lloyd. A deep dive, but so far it's been a really big hit with Carla. Um, Harold Lloyd is the third genius, uh, as how he's often called, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin. And then there's Harold Lloyd, great silent comedian. He's, he made the transition into early sound films. Very different stories when you compare Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd. It's been a lot of fun. So we're, we're making our way through all of his silent and sound feature films. We've just started it, and it'll take us all the way through the end of September. A couple of weeks, I think, we'll have to double up, but most of the weeks will just be single. So if you've never checked out Harold Lloyd, do some searching up on YouTube. There is an official Harold Lloyd channel now. The Harold Lloyd estate has uploaded a lot of his films officially on YouTube. A great way to to see good prints of the films absolutely free. That's the big summertime project. You know, last year it was Laurel and Hardy and two years ago it was Marx Brothers. It's a nice, fun change of pace and kind of make our way through the summer with a little bit of laughter. And I've seen a lot of these, but some of these are first time viewings and that's always a lot of fun. And and I love classic comedies. And I know there's some bleed over from the horror audience. There's some, some horror fans love the comedies. So if you're interested, check it out. Thursdays pretty much is when most of the new posts are going up. There's so far three. We've done two movies and then the intro to Harold Lloyd. Go to um, my website at kccinephile.com, and that's where you can find all the Harold Lloyd stuff. And I posted a few places on Facebook, not as much because it's not as horror movie related, but you can go to my KC Cinephile Facebook page. I also put it up on um, my personal Facebook page. And I do B movie cast and the Bill watches movies since he's very supportive of that and was willing to kind of go beyond a particular genre. So that's where you can find links uh, as those go up every single week. And my other blog, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. As I come up with some stuff for monster movie related, it'll pop up there as well. How about you, sir? What's going on in your neck of the woods? What is going on with me? Well, we just finished Gamera at ClassicHorrors.club, and what a treat that was. Man, I love those movies. And you encouraged me to continue, and I thought about that, but no, I want Gamera to be a traditional thing. So uh, I will pick back up that series. I don't know if I, I don't think I can wait that long to watch another one because they're so much fun. Fridays, I'm still going through those 70s TV movies. We're about to hit Frankenstein, The True Story, which we have talked about in depth several times. I'm not sure 
I could be lazy and just repost the podcast, or I could write up some thoughts of that. I don't think I've ever written anything. I think we've just talked about it. I will challenge you because have you watched the Blu-ray since you purchased the Blu-ray? Great idea. I have not. And because there's some extras on that, you perhaps could go that route. We're hitting a couple that I can't find anywhere. I'm going to have to, I guess, skip and and come back to. They're not on YouTube. I'm going to dig around on my Roku. I, I've in the past found some random TV movies on there. And then on Wednesdays at my sister site, DC Comics Guy, I am still going through Man Bat and each of his appearances in the Bronze Age of Comics. Unfortunately, kind of taking a downturn in my mind, at least the nature of the story. I thought it was going to take a turn that was going to improve something I didn't like. And be careful what you wish for, because I really don't like the approach that they're taking now. He's a private eye sidekick of Jason Bard. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really caring for those. But Man Bat changes with the change of the wind and has kind of a spotty history of jumping from backup story and different comics and different creators. And it's kind of unfortunate. I love the character. So I'm going to continue. That's all I'm doing. But what else I'm doing is preparing for our next adventure. Going to the drive-in again next month. Yes. next. Where are we going? What are we going to see? Well, we are traveling to Smithfield, Pennsylvania, and we're going to be heading to the Moonlight Drive-In for a blood fest. It is going to be a bloody good time next month at the drive-in. We're going to be checking out Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, the 1971 Hammer Horror semi-classic. Theater of Blood from 1973 with the legendary Vincent Price. And then we're going to be uh, wrapping it up with the 1961's Dr. Blood's Coffin. You know, I'm really trying to think. I, I think I've seen Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. I'm fairly certain that I have. I know that I've seen Theater of Blood. I don't know about Dr. Blood's Coffin. I think that I have, but I... I'm trying to remember. Next month's theme is, is a bloody good time. <laughs> Guess who wrote Dr. Blood's Coffin? I don't know who wrote it. Nathan Duran. Interesting. What a small world. I bet we'll talk about that next time. Probably so. That's next month, the Moonlight Drive-In in Smithville, Pennsylvania. If you are in the Smithville, Pennsylvania area <laughs> and you've heard about the Moonlight Drive-In, then let us know. As I recall, there's nothing there that will even look like a drive-in in 2021. But maybe maybe you went to the Moonlight Drive-In when you were a child. Maybe you have memories of the Moonlight Drive-In. Call, write, send a carrier pigeon. Let us know what you think about the Moonlight Drive-In. That's a good segue. Well, I'll just throw this out. Drive-in memories. If anyone wants to, to call or go to Facebook or send us anything, you got some drive-in memories particular fun one, like me, when I saw Howard the Duck and went crazy because I got uh, hypothermia and attacked an innocent tree uh, at the side of a, of a rest area. If you've got a crazy story like that, let us know. Good segue to remind everyone of our number so they can call and tell us those stories. It's 616-649-2582. 
Richard, we're going to go out on a song. It's the same song that we heard at the beginning, but a different artist. This is an R&B remix of Itsy Bitsy Spider. It's by Desmond Dennis. And I didn't see that it's from an album or a CD, but it is available on YouTube. And if you're watching the video podcast, you will see the video that goes with this song. All right. Are we going to get a Barry White vibe going on here with the spider? I don't know. I'm kind of... I don't know what that means. Well, you know, get a little bit of you know, spider love. You know, Barry White. He's got the. I know Barry White. Okay. I don't know what that has to do with spiders. All right. I don't know. Well, it's I been know. a long night. So we must get back home and, and prepare ourselves for next month's episode. Yep. So take care. Thank you much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you're well. Good night. Do you want to say good night or goodbye? <laughs> or? <laughs> yeah. Let, let, <laughs> I just spaced out there. It's like you usually do. I'm, I'm you waiting. Like, Good night, and thank you for your patronage. Try again